Let's go ahead and uh, take a break. Hi, this is In Between Stations Radio. At the tone, it will be 12.01, hours, Greenwich Mean Time, January 1st, 2023. Do you ever cry a lot? Had your heart broken until you think you might die? And then something unannounced happens. Something that's so beautiful you couldn't have ever imagined that it could possibly happen to you. Well, maybe that will be the new year, called 2024. God, I hope so. Because I think this last year almost wiped me out. But hey, I got back up on my feet. And made my way towards the sublime warmth of the rising sun. This is Merky and Bell with In Between Stations Radio. Happy New Year's Eve. I guess it's happy anyway. At least I hope so. If not, I and David are going to try and help you get that nice smile back up there on your beautiful face again. from this illusion and you understand that black implies white self implies other life implies death or shall I say death implies life you can feel yourself not as a stranger in the world not as something here on probation, not as something that has arrived here by fluke, but you can begin to feel your own existence as absolutely fundamental. I'm not trying to sell you on this idea in the sense of converting you to it. I want you to play with it. I want you to think of its possibilities. I'm not trying to prove it. I'm just putting it forward as a possibility of life to think about. So then, let's suppose that you were able every night to dream any dream you wanted to dream. And that you could, for example, have the power within one night to dream 75 years of time. Or any length of time you wanted to have. And you would naturally, as you began on this adventure of dreams, you would fulfill all your wishes you would have every kind of pleasure you could conceive. And after several nights, a 
of 75 years of total pleasure each, you would say, well, that was pretty great. But now let's, um, let's have a surprise. Let's have a dream which isn't under control. Well, something is going to happen to me that I don't know what it's going to be. And uh, you, you would dig that and come out of that and say, wow, that was a, a close shave, wasn't it? Then you would get more and more adventurous and you would make further and further out gambles as to what you would dream. And finally, you would dream where you are now. You would dream the dream of living the life that you are actually living today. That would be within the infinite multiplicity of choices you would have, of playing that you weren't God. Because the whole nature of the Godhead, according to this idea, is to play that he's not. So in this idea then, everybody is fundamentally the ultimate reality. Not God in a politically kingly sense, but God in the sense of being the self, the deep down basic whatever there is. And you're all that, only you're pretending you're not. Good morning or good night. Welcome to In Between Stations Radio. We're looking at a brand new year, the year 2024. That was the preceding voice and little beautiful part was Alan Watts, the amazing entertainer, philosopher, writer, and uh, thought stimulator. He died early on, before he was even 60 in 1973, but he continues to gather audiences and deep and profound thoughts on life and reality and the mystical and the not so mystical. How are you doing? <laughs> did you get drunk last night or did you not get drunk? What did you do? Did you make love to your beautiful significant other or did you just sit and look at the wall all night? Or did you get to listen to In Between Stations Radio? So this in part is part of last night's broadcast during New Year's Eve, and now we're live on New Year's Day. And so we hope you enjoy that. We don't want to date this too much because that's the thing about our last New Year's Day uh, broadcast, the zeitgeist of 2023. We got a lot of people listen to that, and they continue to listen to it all year long. So that's what we want you to do with this. So um, we, we want to stimulate some profound thought. Hey, oh, Murky. Murky is my co-host tonight. Hi. <laughs> if she wants to talk, do you? Do I have a choice? <laughs> She's from reviving from last night's rather wild party in downtown Flagstaff, Arizona. And so, Murky, when you feel good, just go ahead and talk. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, then I want to uh, wait until next year at this time. Huh? Then I want to wait until uh, next okay, year. Okay, yeah. <laughs> oh, here's something else. 
Um, even if it wasn't a brand new year, I'd still have to rethink things out with Murky here on the show. Um, Murky is not only the station programmer, but she's the longtime co-host. We've going on two years now, is that right, Murky? Yeah. 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 Of course, she was close friends with Tiva, my deceased girlfriend. And so Murky is sort of some of what I have left of my Tiva. And so... So um, I'm a ghost now? <laughs> No, you're not a ghost of, of Christmas past, of New Year's past. No. So, Murky does a lot of stuff. By the way, I, I was really touched by your opening dialogue. Um, Thanks. You have a way of, um, yeah, of, of making me a little teary-eyed. <laughs> so, I don't care. You don't care? Right. <laughs> yes, you do. Yes, you do, Maybe. Murky. So it's okay uh, then, if I drink this entire bottle of whiskey. No, you you can't drink. It's time to have coffee. And by the way, I'm having ginger turmeric tea. I'm not drinking coffee tonight. So far. <laughs> drinking tea is for wimps. You think tea's for wimps? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, Murky, should, hey... Do you think we should go to a song? Yeah. You do? Do you have a cool song for us? Maybe. All right, but we're going to go to a song now. Your eyes seek conclusion in all this confusion of mine. Though you and I both know it's only the warm glow of wine It's got you to feeling this way But I don't care, I want you to stay And hold me and tell me you'll be here to love me today Children are dancing, the gamblers are chancing, they're all The windows accusing the door of abusing the wall But who cares what the night watchmen say The stage has been set for the play so just hold me and tell me you'll be here to love me today. stars hang on to the sky Well the wind's running free though it ain't up to me to ask why But the poets are demanding their pay And they've left me with nothing to say Except hold me and tell me You'll be here to love me today 
Just hold me and tell me you'll be here to love me today. Hello and welcome back to In Between Stations in the year 2024. <laughs> I have to play that song. There's a song, uh, I can't remember the title. It will come to me in a minute. Murky, you work on uh, you already. You are okay. Murky already has this keyed up. We're not gonna. Uh, um, you want to play it? <laughs> we just came on the air. So let's just play it. It's good. <laughs> Plus, I can throw back a couple of shots while the song plays. So you can have a drink. Right. Oh my God! I think you're smoking enough to to kill me. <laughs> I have to turn on a fan. Uh, okay, well that's part of in between stations. We put up with Murky because she's because she's a beautiful <laughs> she's a beautiful soul. Murky wants to go to this uh, um, time travel song, and then we'll be back and we're going to talk about time travel. Here we go with yet <laughs> another song. Love you. Just hang in there. We're going to have fun tonight and this morning. So. Um, if you're sleepy, hey, go to sleep. You know what I have? I, we have listeners, huh, Murky? Yep. That go to sleep to this show, and I love that. Because we're, we're there to be your friend, right, Murky? Maybe. No? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're there to just keep you company and, and to have fun talking to you. And if it helps you feel relaxed and you can go to sleep, hey, go for it. It does no, no big deal. Because this world can be really stressful. That's why we need to build a time machine. <laughs> okay. All right. So we're going to go to Murky's uh, song. I'm sure a lot of you have heard it before. If not, enjoy this interesting song with a sort of hopeful ending. <laughs> and it does kind of deal with uh, time travel. Right, Murky? Yep. All right. Here we go. In the year 2525, if man is still alive, if woman can survive, they may find. In the Is in the bill you took today In the year 45, 45 Ain't gonna need your teeth, won't need your eyes You won't find a thing to chew Nobody's gonna look at you In the year 55, 55 Your arms are hanging limp at your side Your legs got nothing to do Doing that for you In the year 65, 65 Ain't gonna need no husband Won't need no wife You pick your son Pick your daughter too From the bottom of a long glass
love in ten thousand years Man has cried a billion tears For what he never knew Now man's reign is through But through eternal night The twinkling of starlight So very far away Maybe it's only yesterday In the That was in the year 2525, a 1969 hit, Murky? Yeah? Right. <laughs> Zagger and Evans. If if man can survive, if woman is still alive. <laughs> I remember hearing that as a little kid. It's a little bit, uh, a little bit crazy. Let me adjust this mic a little bit. Um... Right, so let's talk about time travel a bit. I'm not uh, an expert on time travel, at least not mathematical-wise. I'm, I'm going to talk a little more about the dynamics outside of the world of science to some degree. Um, you can't talk about time travel unless you talk about the 1905 turn-the-world-upside-down special theory of relativity by Albert Einstein. So in 1905, we have what's called the special theory relativity. There were a few problems there. And then in 1915, Einstein come up with the general theory relativity to correct a few problems. Without going into all these details, and I'm not a mathematician, and you can spend a lot of time... <laughs> thinking through this and drive yourself crazy, especially if, especially if you're not very good at math. But what we're concerned about in this show is time dilation that happens when you start traveling at the speed of light. And basically, as you travel at the speed of light, you age slower than someone that's not. So someone back on Earth is going to age quicker and you're going to age slower because you're in this spaceship traveling towards the planet Futo. <laughs> don't know if there's a planet called that. Also, the closer you get to a really powerful gravita gravitating body, it bends space and time, like a black hole. The closer you approach the, the black hole, this tremendous pull of gravity, the less you age. And um, until you're crunched all up and completely smashed into a one-dimensional <laughs> person, I don't know. So time dilation. And there's just, there's, you could spend hours, days, months going through this. And so if you want to drive yourself crazy, look all this stuff up. But that's the big concern we have today is with time dilation. And the fact that at the speed of light, um, you're you're going to age less than someone back there on the Earth if you're traveling towards this distant planet, it's 50 years away. And there's a there's a way you can calculate just how much you will age. And this has actually been proven uh, with with aircraft and satellites that are outside of the Earth's um, gravitational pull, where it's less. You have a, a you have a difference in time, and it can be measured. So so it's not it's 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 pretty strong proof there. 
But for all intents and purposes on today's show, because we're going to talk a bit about time travel, it's this whole element of, um, of if, if and, 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 oh, and also I want to bring up here, it depends on where you're at, where you're measuring the time. If you're back on the Earth and measuring the time and, and the spaceship that's, that's moving towards uh, the planet Futon or whatever. <laughs> so, basically I'm screwed when it comes to my 64 Cadillac. <laughs> No, Murky. No, yes, yes. You can you can build your 1964 Cadillac to, to travel at the speed of light. Good. And then you'll get to the station quicker even when you're really late, right? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. So so where your where, where your op or the observer is. If you're on the train, it's moving at the speed of light. It's going to be the time's going to be a different it's going to happen differently, especially if lightning strikes. Remember that story Einstein gave? You're going to see things uh, differently than the observer that's not on the train. So there, it, 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 it all depends on your app. But basically, as you increase the speed in your spaceship, you're going to age less than the person back there. And I think in that movie Interstellar, I haven't seen that for a long time. Wasn't there a whole problem with um, this planet that's close to a black hole and this whole sad thing about seven years lapse and she's missing or something like that. I don't yeah. Know. So I, I guess the quantum was was kind of born before uh, relativity, the quantum world of the the, the minute atoms, and uh, um, it was um, already uh, around and, and affected the way that Albert Einstein thought and uh, Niels Bohr's and people like this, and uh, later they would help to solidify the. Uh, the quantum world and quantum physics, but relativity certainly opened the doorway to the infinitely small, which which behaves in a very bizarre way compared to to the world that we live in that we see that which is referred to as the Newtonian dynamic. So the way light behaves on a, on an atomic level was kind of where this guy, this German scientist Max Planck, I think was his name. He eventually won the Nobel. Peace Prize, some 1918 or something like that. Um, and then I'm going off the top of my head here, so forgive me if I make errors. You know, come on, I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not a physicist. But um, relativity basically became the general public started to embrace this concept of what happens when when, when light bends with the speed of motion of a body moving at the speed of light, um, and so. That, and the reason I'm bringing that up is, is a lot of times we use that, uh, people use that in books and movies to, to sort of um, to ex expand this notion of the possibility of time travel. But as it turns out, mathematically, it isn't really too possible. Uh, not in the way that we, we perceive it. Let's go ahead and uh, take a break.
You're listening to Late Nights, on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley. You're listening to Late Nights, on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley. So welcome back. We've been talking about, or trying to talk about, <laughs> the uh, theory of relativity and how that fits into time travel as a baseline. And we're going to skip along here into the quantum theory. And so let's continue on. And, but, but again, that um, it overlooks some other things that's come up in the quantum world lately. And I, and I talk about this guy... Uh, a lot, uh, and, and he is very important, especially lately. He died sort of uh, unnoticed, not recognized. Hugh Everett, Hugh Everett and the multi-worlds theory. I think there's some 13 different theories in, in physics, but it was very radical, and he actually met with um, Niels Bohr's, you know, the guy that came up with the Copenhagen deal, and how observation of the, uh, of the scientists can really affect the way we see um, the quantum, the, pho the way we look at photons. and um, So whoever came along and said, every time we make a decision, every time we look at something, we, we, the possibility, there's a possibility of creating an alternate reality. Not that you can get into those alternate realities, but they're there. There's alternate universes. And his, his, his theory uh, was basically not really accepted until after he died. Now it's just huge. If for nothing else in Hollywood and books and literature, uh, everyone's using the multi-world theory. But it does have um, potentiality, and especially in terms of time travel. So I want to leave this, the realm of science and move into the other realm that's available to all of us. You don't have to be a psychic you don't have to fast and pray in the jungle. <laughs> you, you, you don't have to take ayahuasca or hallucinogenics. It's something that happens to us every night when we go to sleep. When our eyes start moving back and forth for, what, 90 minutes? We go into this deeper level of sleep called rapid eye movement and start to have these profound, deeper dreams. We have lighter dreams. There are ser se several stages of dreams. I've talked about this in previous um, episodes. Usually I, when I refer to my dreams and, and, and substantial dreams, I'm referring to the deeper REM dreams. And uh, a lot of profound things happen there. And this also brings into question, what is consciousness? How do we perceive time? And, and I brought this up uh, in several different broadcasts that you, that I, I can't remember what, night, the specific days. This has happened to me so many times, but one instance where I went, I, I laid down on my bed early evening time. My family was out in the living room. My wife at the time was sewing or making something. And I was really tired. I'd been working at the hospital. I often talk about working in the hospital in the emergency room and the laboratory there in the Flagstaff, uh, uh, as we call it, the acronym is FMC, Flagstaff Medical Center. I worked there for six, almost seven years, and often in the emergency room. 
So I come home from, I, I think I'd worked a number of graveyard shifts in a row. And so I'm just completely sleep deprived because, you know, you stay up for, for hours and sometimes days in the hospital. Uh, and I don't know if it's the best thing, but it goes on a lot, especially in the emergency room. You have doctors working two and three shifts and often don't get sleep or try to sleep in the, uh, these little rooms, uh, in the hospital and especially in the emergency room because they're they're sort of on call and they have to be there but you also also everyone else working in the hospital especially the graveyard shift anybody that works in a hospital knows this people are sleep deprived and and, and uh, you just uh, and you have what I call blackouts so you went so long without sleep that you just you, you can't think straight and and actually you lose track of things and 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 you're, you're asleep on your feet and you can't Concert. Yeah, I, I don't know why this goes on. It goes on in lots of different jobs, especially in the United States. Uh, I mean, it's illegal if you're in a, uh, flying a plane, so maybe it should be in the hospital. I, I don't know. That's not what this is about. It's about that I was really sleep deprived, and I come home, and so uh, I'm glad to be home, and I say hello, you know, kiss my wife at the time, and hi to the kids, and then I go into the bedroom. Take off, I, I mean, I take off my, my hospital clothes, you know, the, what, I can't remember what they're called. Uh, you have to wash them all the time. And even the hospital will do it for you sometimes. So I take, get, out, get in my pajamas and I lay on the bed and I'm immediately, I, I start dreaming. And, and this is uh, something that happens a lot with people. When you're sleep deprived and you don't have dream sleep, you can sit on a couch you can be, even be standing up, and, and you're immediately into into the dream, the deep dream stage, REM. Your eyes are closed, and, and they're moving. Your eyelids are closed, and your eyes are moving back and forth, following the images in your dream, which coincidentally are happening a lot quicker than you think, and that's what this story is about. Um, and 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 time dilation, actually. So, uh, and uh, there's been some. Uh, a lot of uh, scientific work done on something like pot, because pot, listen to the Joe Rogan show, it's a three-hour show where he has a dream scientist on there. I've talked about it before. There's been some, uh, some pretty powerful evidence that long-term pot use deprives you of um, your, your dream content sleep and can cause actually psychotic problems uh, with paranoia and uh, with not being able to remember your dreams because you're not having them. And, and that's why people that have smoke a lot of pot and then stop start having these really uh, deep dream content sleep and very vivid dreams is because your body has to catch up. It has a sleep bank for dreams. And if it doesn't have that sort of stuff, you can get psychotic and actually even die. There's a whole family uh, genetically that can't sleep after they arrive at a certain age. I think mid-age sometime. They stop being able to have... Uh, REM sleep. There's a whole research done in this family and lots of stories about them and it's not a good situation. So when you don't get sleep, your body will find any way for you to have it and especially the dream sleep. If you drink a lot of coffee and you're a big coffee user, you'll notice coffee starts to make, instead of keeping you awake, makes you really tired. That's because your body figures out a way around the caffeine and you become caffeine and, you know, intolerant. You can't, uh, the caffeine doesn't work anymore. And your body finds ways to get you to be sleepy. Because you've got to have that dream sleep. 
So there I am, deprived of dream sleep, several days on the graveyard shift, and instantly, when I lay down on the bed, I, I'm gone. I'm there in the dream world. And this particular night, uh, this dream, or this place I go, uh, I, I guess mid-1800s, 1850s, so no cars, uh, wagons, uh, and I'm in this little town uh, somewhere in the Midwest, living a life, have a family, working on a farm. Um, don't, I don't think I had my face I have now. I was, I was myself, but I looked like somebody else living in a different time period. And it's just all these, and, and, and so we don't go on for a long time here. And I, and I don't have to tell the whole story. So I'm in this time period and I'm living and I have a family in a cabin. Uh, we have a little farm. Um, I have my wife, I have my kids, and it's just this whole beautiful reality. And, 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 it's, and it plays itself out over weeks, months, even years. And so it's, 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 it's pretty amazing, the detail and the experience, uh, and I, that's, that's me, that's the life I'm living. And then suddenly, I, I think my, my wife shook me, come in uh, and said something like, Dave, uh, the, the, you're, you're wanted on the phone. Yeah. Uh, so immediately I come out of this, this 1850s family situation, this little town, and I'm back in the 21st century. And I'm really confused. And so here's the deal is, I remember looking at the clock, you know, in the bedroom, we have those old digital clocks. And I'm like, oh my God, I've been asleep for 15 minutes. And it seems like an entire, entire lifetime passed by. Weeks, months, years. I, lived in, I was living an entire lifetime. And yet, this small amount of time had actually passed. So time dilation in dreams. Uh, where was my consciousness, unconscious? Where, what, what was the difference between the 21st century and 18th? I mean, it's so believable. I couldn't, I couldn't have tell, been able to tell what was what until I woke up. And this is something I talk about a lot on in between stations. So I think the, the, the more accurate, the better time machine is our own dreams. And, this, uh, and I'm gonna talk about a book here uh, that was written in 1927, uh, an experiment uh, with time by uh, J.W. Dunn, an aeronautical engineer, who, this rationally minded mathematician uh, that has a problem that's not so rational. He has precognition in his dreams and it kind of freaks him out because he has prophetic dreams. Uh, ones where, where these incredible worldwide catastrophes happen, and he, he, uh, he, he has precognition of these months, even a few years before they happen, and he wants to know what you know what the hell is going on here because this is not rational. How do I? I'm a scientifically minded person. I'm an aeronautical engineer, and uh, how do I? What, what does this mean? This doesn't make sense. Anyway, we'll talk more about that. So. There's the story, and there's a situation we're going to take a look at as, as, as our consciousness and how we perceive time. Not only culturally, we're taught how we perceive time because different cultures have different concepts of time. If you travel, if you go to indigenous native cultures like I do, the calendar of time, the ceremonial calendar, the perception of 
the world and what's there is, 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 is radically different sometimes than what we as outsiders in the Western world look at. You know, these, these tribes have been here you know, like Hopi and Zuni thousands of years. They were doing this stuff before we ever got here and changed, radically changed, uh, forced them to educate them in our way we see time and how we uh, perceive the concept of time passing. But back to Hugh Ebert, uh, the, the quantum physicist, and the multi-worlds theory, uh, these branch-offs of realities. That you create these realities, these universes, by just changing uh, a situation a lot or just a little bit. So in, in addition to your nine to five reality you have all these other parallel realities taking place that are a lot different or a little different so minor changes and major changes and i entertain the idea that some of our dreams these deeper narrative dreams um, are a threshold that uh, that works in that that way in the in the multi-world theories that we're jumping around in realities and possibilities in our dreams that these aren't just ideas and imaginations, that I think they're portals. And this comes you know, from years of my own personal dream search, I, uh, research. I mean, I literally have three shelves in my library, in my room, of just dreams I kept track of. And there's a lot of nonsense dreams. There's a lot of dreams, uh, sexual dreams, uh, frustration dreams. And I've talked about this before. There's these very significant dreams. Jung called them big dreams. Of course, he equated them in terms of archetypes. But I, I started to, to see that there's these, these uh, portals, these, these uh, passageways that seem to be uh, slight alternations in my, in my nine to five reality and, and major ones, where a close friend or a lover has the, a different hair color or one of her eyes is a different color, or she, instead of being five feet tall, she's six feet tall, or five, eight, same as me. Um, but in, in, the, in the dream, uh, she, there's variations on her. And I may have several dreams of her where she's different, and, and different choices make different uh, outcomes. And I think the dream not only entertains that creative-wise, but I think you actually can go into the uh, into these alternate realities. That's that, that's one explanation. Uh, explanation. Now, you know that's that's a lot of conjecture there, and you're like, oh my god. But like again, I say, if you don't if you don't keep track of your dreams, if you don't uh, if you don't remember your dreams, and we're going to talk more about there's a way to do that. It's this J.W. Dunn. This book we're going to talk about, one of several books. Oh, great. So we have to go through all your notebooks on the air. <laughs> no, Mark. <laughs> go through an entire library of books. God, I um, hope not. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, okay. So, so I, I think, personally, that there's a possibility that the dreams, the dream world when we sleep, uh, and you know, a lot of indigenous tribes know about this. This is in part of their ceremonies. This is part of their culture. They've been doing this thousands of years. Uh, and, you know, in addition to hallucinogenic pl uh, plant medicines like ayahuasca that boost and help you with this, traveling through these multi-worlds. That's a big one with the jaguar shamans in the, North Am in the northern Amazon and Colombia. Uh, these people uh, have 
It takes years and years of training to travel through these 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 uh, alternate realities, these different worlds. They're there. They're as real as this one. But if you haven't experienced this stuff, then it's bull. You know, it's bullshit. You're like, oh, whatever. You know, it's pipe dreams. But isn't the nine to five reality we live in kind of like controlled? Isn't that one of our problems right now? Is it what's real and what's not real? How much is the government doing it? How much is the video being edited? How much is AI doing it? So, so the manipulation of reality is something that we're really looking at closely now with the internet, with with technology. So, um, it, uh, this reality we're living in the United States could be as fake as anything else. So, why why is it uh, any more of a jump to say that hey, this could be all a dream? And you know, that's what I'm always. That's what in between stations we love to mess with you. Uh, you have no way of being able to prove that. And, and, and yeah, you think it's hogwash if you don't remember your dreams. If you're not looking at the details of them. If, you're not, if you haven't experienced something like the ayahuasca world. So I, what I say to you, if you're really critical of this, is open your mind up. And if not, then why don't you go have the experience and don't criticize me or other people. If you haven't had the experience, you're, you're out there. If you haven't been to Hawaii... You, you know, it, it's it's not the same as somebody talking to you about it. You got to go there. Anyway, okay. <laughs> Moving on. All right, Murky wants to go to a song, so we're gonna go to another cool song. When Murky? Ah, right now. Have you read the French novel 
a big, long, profound, earth-shattering novel, and especially it was in 1913. It kind of ripped the whole Victorian thing apart, you know, the solidity of a narrative and uh, a story, because um, Swan's Way, or um, In Search of Lost Time, is this, we, we kind of do this a lot with novels now, but it was kind of unheard of then. Uh, and I think, I think Relativity and Quantum and Sigmund Freud, although, you know, I don't think, um, I don't think Proust read Freud, but the modern age was being birthed. This is when Ulysses comes along, the great novel by James Joyce, although a little later. But um, contemplating time and contemplating how we remember things and how our consciousness works. Proust really paved the way to, to uh, stories without a really set narrative. You know, narrative is really strong. We look at something like um, the Odyssey by Homer, uh, which is a baseline for the way we write and the way we tell stories. Um, it's it's important that you set up a story and a narrative in a certain way, and uh, especially in the Victorian age. And so Proust, in around in 1913, and in a lot of his novels, decides to depart from that issue and, and work with um, memory. You know, going back and forth between time periods back and forth between people that you know. And uh, this, this process called involuntary memory. So something you're eating, uh, I guess in the book, uh, a sweet cake is dipped in something like cocoa and he tastes it and it takes him back to his childhood. The first part of the book deals with these memories of, of his childhood. Uh, and so the book is constantly moving back and forth between different time periods. And it's fascinating because it, it saturates you with emotions, with, with sadness, with, with, with happiness, with, with loss. Uh, and it's, it's, it, was, it was fairly experimental at that time period. And uh, it, was, it was new. I mean, I, I think it's something we do a lot with our novels now. Uh, I found I, I haven't read the whole thing. <laughs> It's over a thousand pages or something like that. It's it's quite long, but I have I have read different parts of it because my my own novel, I'm, Timelines are Sarah. I hadn't read Proust's um, uh, Swan's Way. Uh, I had never read it before, and somebody suggested because my novels about this whole issue of remembering back of time travel, of um, not being sure if it's a dream or if you're awake, uh, and and so. My novel is these two characters, David, who's not really based on me. I've talked about this before, but this individual with the same name as me and this person named Sarah. And, and so it goes back to their childhood in 1966, and this horrible automobile accident. But after that, it moves backwards and forwards through time and uh, different types of time and time periods. And you're never quite sure what's going on here other than these two people love each other and they want to be with each other. And so love is a, you know, it's a, it's a strong point in a lot of novels. Um, so love is a foundation of that, but also what is reality? Um, are we a dream? You know, and that's, that's one of the themes of In Between Stations. And Are we awake or are we dreaming? Or is life a, a, a dream? And if it is a dream, what does that mean? And so in, in, without going into all these details, and I have in previous 
broadcast because we're, you know, this is New Year's. Guess I will so, have enough time uh, now to go home and make love to my boyfriend. Okay, Murky. <laughs> time to go to another song because dear Murky has something she wants to play for us.
Hi, welcome back to In Between Stations Radio. Joining your host, David Hartley, me, hi, and Murky Ann Bell. Hi. The incredible Murky Ann Bell. Thanks. Um, we're going to play a few pieces from early Murky broadcasts that are quite amazing, actually. And they deal with time, right, Murky? Yeah. Yeah. She's good at that. There's some there's these short narratives... Or uh, like 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 at the beginning of our, our show uh, this this evening and today uh, that deals with uh, the thought process of time time issues. Murky, you know, I and Murky talk a lot about that off the air. It was a big subject with I and Tiva when she was alive too. Um, I wrote a whole short story. It was pretty popular. Uh, I did it as a radio broadcast um, that was based on I and Tiva's uh, life together. Or the time we spent together. I'm trying to remember what the name of it is. You should listen to it. Um, a lot of people like it. I decided to use uh, just a sort of AI um, narrator. I didn't want to narrate it, but um, it's it's pretty good. Uh, and I'm trying to remember um, the name of the. Uh, it'll it'll come to me in a little bit here. It's called Nevi. Stupid. What is it, Murky? <laughs> the name is Nevi. Oh, all right. Now I remember, Nevi. Nevi was a look into um, th- these kind of memories of, of uh, smells and uh, of music and of that person um, and uh, taking uh, Iantiva's time together and making it into, making a fictional account between these two two characters and their uh, their ro- romance. So if you get a chance, um, listen to that. But again, it, it deals with this whole factor of memory, uh, of time then and now. And, you know, I think all of us realize we're constantly going back and forth. If we're, if we're not busy, our mind goes back and forth uh, to, to various memories of people and situations. Uh, the, I think 1913 was um, Swan's Way uh, by Proust. Um, uh, in, in Search of Lost Time. Um, and then uh, Joyce's profound novel, uh, Ulysses, was I think came out in 1920, so seven years later or something like that. And that rocked the world. Uh, no one had really, it, sort of like Prowse's book, uh, Swan's Way, or um, In Search of uh, Lost Time, um, it really had an effect because basically this entire huge novel, which involves incredible amounts of philosophy and abstractions of time and language. And again, language can also manipulate the factors of time and culture. Uh, And this whole process of these two people, well, a number of people's lives, but mainly Stephen who's the major character in Ulysses on how he, he goes, he thinks back on things. He thinks back on his mother's death. He thinks back on the guilt of, of things that he done. He thinks back on his relationships. And, and there's other characters in the book, but basically this entire big, thick book that took me like three years to read, because <laughs> I, I, I wanted to take my time with it, and I did thoroughly enjoy it, and it did change my life profoundly. Um, but it take, it's, a, it's a struggle. It doesn't have a lot of grammar in it. Sometimes sentences will flow on for pages. Uh, and this is this is the sort of to, to get you to contemplate um, language, to get you to contemplate culture, to get you to contemplate what is time. 
Who's taught you about time? How do you remember things? What, what's a smell like? What's it like to make love to somebody when you really love them a lot? Uh, what's it like to, to, to dislike somebody? And, and what's it like to be influenced by Christianity, to be influenced by tribal aspects? So it contemplates a lot of uh, different things, and it all takes place in one day. So how much information is loaded in a minute, in an hour? How much can our mind take and our body take that we're not seeing or feeling? And, and what, what gets us to understand that this is the present tense? And, you know, with tribes, especially with, with people like the uh, Aborigine tribes, and there are several tribes in Australia, not just one. That's a sort of a general term, Aborigine, referring to the indigenous people that lived there uh, when the colonists came. Um, excuse me, I'm going to take a, a drink of my tea here. And they had the dream time, which is kind of an outsider term. Uh, Alaringa, I can't pronounce it right, but this this mythical time that you're always in. You know, they have the um, the walkabout where you 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 have these you walk to these mythical places where these characters teach you the spring, the water, the the kangaroo deity. But you're in this kind of um, present tense, excuse me, all the time. And this is something big with with indigenous tribes, especially in the Amazon and even here in the Southwest is time is, is perceived in a much different way, especially in terms of the ceremonial seasons, uh, the ceremonial uh, flow of time works with the seasons, with the, with, with the lunar cycles, with the solar cycles, uh, and, and, this, and the mythical time that where everything came from, where, uh, where, where it originated from, before you were born. And, and so this whole uh, ordeal with, with, with consciousness, with, with what you need to do in this life, that you have, uh, that is saturated with meaning, and you have things you need to do and react to. And, the, and so indigenous time is a lot different than our Western time. The colonist invaders, the Spanish invaders, brought a whole different time ethic with them. Time was owned. Time was money. Time is getting resources. You didn't have that much time in your life. You know, there's a lot of horrific things going on in the old world, a lot of wars, and, and the, uh, especially in Spain. A lot of these people were seasoned combat veterans, and they didn't have a good view of life. You got the job done, and then you, you did it in sometimes a really cold and cruel way. Um, so there's these whole ideas that we have about time that are taught to us through the manipulation of language, through the manipulation of myths, through the manipulation of a story in your religion. Uh, and it's not saying that it's bad. I mean, we need to have an orientation. I'm just saying that's the case, and that everybody doesn't see it the same way. That's kind of the... When you get down to the wars we're having right now in Gaza and Ukraine, it's this conflict of cultures. It's this conflict of how you see things, how you see your religion, how you see ownership, uh, and that's that's a it's a big problem. Uh, it, it, does this belong to us, or or does it? Or, or are they entitled to their freedom? Uh, you know, Ukraine gets their freedom, but Gaza doesn't. Who decides that? 
Russia is the invader, but Israel is not. And I'm not taking sides here. Please, I'm just saying that it depends on who you are and where you are, how you perceive things. And, you know, if you people that have amnesia, if you get bopped on the head, if you have a disability, and I, this is one of the things I dealt with my with my girlfriend Tiva is her her understanding of time was a lot different than mine. She's seen it not only in, in in terms of her Islamic culture, but in terms of of her perception of things. And she had uh, some disabilities. She had some I don't want to call them defects, but she had a different way of of dealing with time periods. With, with leaving and coming back. And so when you love somebody, you have, and especially for from different cultures or different mindsets, you have to learn things about each other. And, and the fact of love can allow you to be a lot more patient with that and, and learning about that other person. So the story Nevi is kind of, if you get a chance, is, is, is kind of about that. But again, this gets back to on um, this whole ordeal with with uh, ordeal or this possibility of time travel. If you can manipulate the mind, if you can manipulate the conscience to believe something, is that indeed reality? And in, in who is saying that this is reality? And a lot of times, that's your government, that's your culture, that's your religion, that's the calendar you have on the wall. I have a friend. Uh, yeah, the, speaking of the calendar on the wall, that was one of the effects I had when I went to the Middle East and the war I was in, is Islamic nations have a different time timekeeping uh, going on. It starts with the Prophet Muhammad. They don't. The, it's not the year 2024 there. I have to look it up and see what year it is. It's the same thing with a lot of these tribes I go to. They have a whole different way of keeping track of time. Having been uh, educated and forced to go to boarding schools and take on our cultural viewpoints, it's a little bit different now than it was, say, when, you know, in 1776. A little bit different even 100 years ago, and it's a little bit different even now. I just went to uh, a New Year ceremony called Soya Long, if I said that right, uh, where the Hopis celebrate the New Year, and they have a whole different way of looking at that. Uh, in the village I was in, very few families are even aware of Christmas. I mean, some were, but it was generally, uh, it wasn't part of the ceremonial process. Uh, and this, this particular ceremony has been going on probably at least 2,000 years or more. And so, in the whole way of perceiving time uh, and starting a function and ending a function and using the moon, because these Pueblo people keep track of time with lunar phases more than solar phases, but the solar, the solstice is part of that. You're listening to Late Nights on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley. You're listening to Late Nights on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley. So uh, this next little piece is uh, from uh, a, a good friend of mine, uh, Evan Middling. And uh, Evan is uh, a collector of rare books, uh, intellectual, uh, has um 
at least a couple of degrees, and um, he's a really interesting person to talk to, and he pursues uh, a lot of different uh, indigenous um, factors of knowledge, uh, Greek, Greek knowledge. Um, he, he really likes to look at history, and he likes to look at uh, a lot of insights, not only into uh, hallucinogenics, but the death experience, and also he ties this in with his uh, journeys down into Mesoamerica, into Mexico, Oaxaca, uh, being with the tribes down there, and and in this little part, he talks about the difference, uh, the difference, the different ways that time is perceived down there versus our Western culture here in the United States, and this goes in a, not only in. Uh, contemporary-wise, but goes into ancient history of the Aztec and the Mistec and people, and we all know they're an amazing uh, calendar system, uh, two-calendar system, and of course he mentions it's even more than that. Uh, and so it's it, uh, he's gonna it's an interesting insight he has here. So this is my this was recorded in my friend Evan's house. You're gonna hear sounds of like the fire in the background and just some other things going on inside of a, a live environment of a house. So it's not a studio by any means. But it is an interesting bit how he talks about how time is perceived, especially uh, in the Mesoamerican sector in, in Oaxaca. So here we go uh, and enjoy this on time perception in Mesoamerica. So how do people measure at the end of a cycle and the beginning of a cycle? Most people in our culture do it in terms of... Uh, you know, Christmas or January 1st, right. you know, people have different calendars. I mean, above my, above my uh, um, desk is a calendar from 1941. It's an Alka-Seltzer calendar, so I put up during the holiday. And it has the dates on there, and it has little comments of what, it's a weather calendar. Mm -hmm. So it, it predicts the weather on each day. But it's just a really beautiful calendar but and everybody asked me this come to my house the last two weeks why I have a calendar up from 1941 okay yeah. right and there are a lot of different calendars there's the Julian calendar the Gregorian calendar the mm. in in uh, Mexico you know they have like the Zapotec calendar yeah. as opposed to the Mexica calendar and it creates a lot of confusion because uh, they have to make adjustments. So, so, so the Mayan calendar, Aztecan calendar, which is a little confusing. Just talk. There's there's two different calendars, right? I mean, basically, uh, well, actually, there's actually, more than yeah, that. Yeah. I think really. But uh, when they were trying to establish dates. Um, you know, the Spanish um, landed in Veracruz, and then they made their way to Mexico City. And um, they be started to become familiar with the Mexica calendar and uh, how that worked. Mm. And, they and the Mexica are? The Aztecs. Yeah, uh, yeah. So get to point that out. To and so... Um, and then, in the 1930s, Alfonso Caso mm -hmm. uh, found a lienzo. And he's, uh, he's a writer, right? An, an archaeologist. He's a, right, an archaeologist. Indigenous from Mexico. And this uh, lienzo had dates on it. 
but this Lienzo was from Oaxaca, and um, they tried to align the dates. It was actually a genealogy. Wow. Really? It was a genealogy, you know, birth and death dates of different um, uh, Mishtek rulers. And was that, it chronologically lined in line? Yes. With, wow. Mm-hmm. And this is this is how this, you know when you get into interpreting the Mishtek codices, uh, people like um, Edward Seller, the Germans were the first to scientifically try to understand these codices, and they would see these personages in the codices. And they weren't sure how to interpret them. They interpreted them as deities. And then they associated the deities with astronomical phenomena. So, so when you say codices, right? Uh, that, what is codices? A codex is, codex comes from the Latin word for bark. <laughs> It's a European oh, yeah. word, yeah, but it basically means a manuscript, something mm. written on parchment or, um, in this case, in the case of the uh, text, they're written on deerskin. So when you say written, what do you mean? Is there actually Painted. Words? Painted. Right. Mm. Painting and writing are, are uh, the same in terms of the Mishtek codices, because basically they're painting um, logographs. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. So there, it's a picture writing. Almost like early hieroglyphics, right? So, right. So you're, you're actually seeing the pharaoh, and the pharaoh's with right. ISIS. Right. It's a, it's a, they, you know, they look kind of like cartoons. And so uh, Alfonso Caso um came across this Lienzo, uh, which was a um, genealogy. It had a genealogy on it, going back hundreds of years with these different Mishtek rulers, and there were dates assigned to it. And they started running into problems because they realized that the, the... Mexica calendar, the Aztec calendar, which they were familiar with and which they had correlated to the um, Spanish calendar. Mm. So in other words, they could figure out the coronation date of um, all the Aztec rulers going back into the 1400s and before. And they could also uh, correlate... um, the the Aztec history as it was related to them by the Aztecs. So, so, so they could date these things. They they knew the precise dates yeah. in in the um, astronomical wise too, right? Well, here you get into this problem. Mm-hmm. You know, I was saying that you know you have these different calendars. You have the Julian calendar, the Gregorian yeah. calendar, and those changed. Well, that, and in I mean- the, I mentioned when I was in the Middle East that their their calendar system there is totally different than ours because they go right. off of, you know Islam Muhammad right and his uh, you know the Quran and so what's the standard you're using for the calendar you know the calendar mm. is a representation of time right yeah what's your standard 
what do you choose as the beginning point, for instance? So who's who? So I mean, we have in in the Western world, you have twenty four time zones. You have Greenwich Mean Time, which is right. time zero. There but, there have been these problems with calendars. You know, mm-hmm. when they put the railroads in, that's when they decided to standardize the calendar. Mm-hmm. Different cities in the United States have did had different times, Interesting. and they had to standardize all that because these trains were running into each other and they couldn't coordinate <laughs> them in time. Yeah. So, but getting back to that question, what's the you know what's the standard? What's the principle of the calendar? And what I think is uh, a reasonable, a logical principle is uh, the solstice, for instance, the winter solstice. Which is coming up in December. Right. So that's an astrological phenomenon. Mm. It's not just arbitrary or man-made or, you know. It's pretty, I mean, it's going to happen no matter what you do. Right. And it's, you know, you can, it's measurable. You can measure the day before the winter solstice as a certain length mm-hmm. and the day after, and it start the days start getting longer. So these ideas that are rooted in nature, astronomical phenomena, etc., seem to me to be more powerful than just an arbitrary calendar. Yeah, I think I agree, I agree with that. I mean... Obviously, uh, you know, when you're looking up in the sky, it's going to be, it's, 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 it's kind of, it's, it's actually in a lot of ways more accurate than a clock. Right. So we were talking about uh, synchrony, mm-hmm. sin, same crony, time, uh, same time. So when you're synchronizing something, you're matching two things. And like I said, I think it's a, a more powerful thing to synchronize your calendar to something that is actually observable, that actually, you know, has a, is rooted in the workings of the, you know. So, so I mean, I mean, one of the problems I see is times owned by employers, it's owned by corporations. You know, now with uh, with digital time, you really can't be late for work because everybody has a cell phone. Right. And it has this. But that's a problem, too, because you get to thinking, well, is that really time? Is that really Or whose time? Yeah. Who, whose time are you living by? I mean, I had a boss once tell me that um, you're on the clock, buddy. And right. And so you got to do these tasks. And as long as you're here at work, you're pretty much owned by this organization. That's true. He said that. Because I've been yeah. outside taking a break or something, I can't remember. Well, anyone who's paying someone else a wage understands that, you know. Yeah. That you're paying them to to uh, conform to their job title, I suppose. But So, so, so well, and, and then let's just talk briefly about... Uh, what happens to time when you go when you do something like a, a hallucinogenic, or when you're uh, in a really deep meditation? Well, we were talking ceremony. yesterday about these rituals, mm. and um, a lot of indigenous ritual is rooted in what I was talking about. It's mm. rooted in the actual workings of um, the cosmos. Yeah, but the shallow, When I went to the shallow that's been we, we know at least two or three thousand years, 
and that's that's versed around uh, it's it's by a lunar cycle. Right. So so the the indigenous people will say uh, our rituals are creator given; they're not man made. In other words, they're not just thought up in someone's head, but they're rooted in um, in reality. So in Mesoamerican in Mesoamerican cultures, um, the uh, dawn is very important. In multivalent, has many meanings. The sunrise. So when the sun's coming up over the horizon. right over the horizon. Mm. So um, there's a defrosismo in. Um, Interpret that word again. I mean, I, I, the defrost uh, the. Um, Indigenous languages of Mesoamerica are embedded in in their cosmology, and in their cosmology, it's kind of they believe in this uh, idea of um, they call it enamic uh, energies, and what that means it's kind of like yin and yang. There's uh, there are opposing energies, mm. and reality comes into being through the workings of these opposing energies. That was my uh, friend Evan Middling. If you're just joining the show, this is in between stations uh, radio with David Hartley, me, and Murky Ann Bell. Um, and this whole show is kind of about time travel, about how we perceive time, how we keep track of time. And, and I think what Evan points out there is it, it, it's highly cultural, especially depending on where you're at. And that's the whole thing, with, remember, with the theory of relativity. Uh, it's the position of the observer. Are they, are they traveling at the speed of light, or are they watching and keeping track of someone that is traveling at the speed of light? Is that, is that a person leaving the, the Earth and going somewhere else? Are they coming towards the Earth? Um, what's, are you in a car? Are you in a plane as well? Um, so these things, uh, time changes. It's it's relative. So even in a math, in even the mathematical equations, uh, time's affected by a lot of different factors. And 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 I think what we're looking at here is cultural factors. The way you're raised, uh, from the day you come out of the womb, the way you're taught to recognize uh, this is a day, this is an hour, uh, and and the clock we have. And I mentioned this often, uh, like a wristwatch. That is a creation of humans, and especially modern humans, and it's kind of something that has ownership on it. It's equated in terms of money. It's equated in how much time do you have at work, how much time, vacation time do you have. And it's, it's seen as a linear progression, and that's we perceive that as being normal. But that's in our culture. You go to somewhere like Hopi or Zuni, or in, in, in Evan's case, you go to Mesoamerica and Oaxaca, where all these different tribes are and different languages are spoken, not just Spanish, but it's 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 pretty complex. Uh, you get a different concept of how time travels. Not only is it the cosmos, the stars, and, and the natural setting of the of the moon and the and the sun, but it's it's manipulated by the way we perceive it through our culture, through our nation, through the way you're taught in school, the way your parents teach you, uh, and and. And as I pointed out before, time is also different 
with animals. They, they measure things differently. They don't have the same education, the same boundaries that we have. And so that's just something I'm trying to point out. If you're going to travel through time, and I think it affects your mind, it affects your consciousness, and how the way you perceive that. And if that perception is abnormal, or if it's been altered, or if it's uh, a certain way, like if you lived in Nazi Germany in 1930s and you know the 1940s, time was maybe a different factor. Uh, time in the modern age is different than it was in, in, in the ancient Egypt. The millionaire god. Hieroglyphics have a different way. This is a long-term society, 3,000 years old. My god, we're, what are we, 250 years? Can you imagine 3,000 years what you learn? So the, and, and one of those things is the perception of time. Not only in this sphere, but other spheres, especially if you're traveling through, through uh, alternate realities. Okay, so let's let's uh, let's go to a song, and, and we're gonna we're gonna we'll, we'll come back. <laughs> time. Here we go. All right. Hi, welcome back. Um, we're gonna play. Uh, we're gonna play a couple of um, pieces uh, by earlier broadcasts that Murky did. They're four and five minutes long. They're, they're, they're pretty powerful. We're gonna we're gonna play one right now, and then a little later on we'll play another one because I think it kind of fits into this whole uh, approach to the new year. And Murky has a really particular way of um, pointing things out, which I rather like, Murky. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, th thank you too. Um, 
yeah, she's a big part of our show, but not always talkative about what goes on uh, underneath the process of our of our show here in between stations. Okay, let's go to that uh, piece with Murky. Time. So how do you really know what time it actually is? You know, what year or even what day it really is. I mean you could be dreaming this all up. And how do you know if you are, or if you are not, just dreaming this all up? Well, you don't until you wake up. That is if you ever wake up, at all. My friend, Miss Julie Cook, often tells me how she thinks we are already dead, but that we really don't realize we are dead, or that we have died, because we keep playing out the same old reality, over and over. Again, and again. Dying and being reborn over and over eternally in the same lifetime. You know, Dante's levels of hell with only eight rooms, eight empty hotel rooms, turned sideways to look like the number eight laying in a big bed with some hyper beautiful guy, laying behind you, going to town on you, as you get lost forever dreaming of being locked in there, in that lonely hellish bed. Or maybe it is just you, being forever lost in that place called, Bardo. Lost in Bardo hell, never wanting to be reborn or enlightened. Sometimes I wonder if some of the guys I fell in love with, that were pretending to be husbands, just kept reoccurring over and over, again and again with a different face but that same damnable soul. But having the same urges to be naked in bed with you. Then announce one day that they can't believe you're pregnant with their baby. Then as it goes, out the door they go, breaking your heart they go, endlessly reoccurring with all their fucked up goodbyes. And you know, you won't survive all the pain they left you with, so you start the reoccurring fantasy that it's all a dream. Yes, it's all a dream, just so you can survive all the sadness of being alone with you and your new baby. You know the New Year's baby girl, because the old New Year's boyfriend is now gone, the stupid boyfriend that went out the door. And you suddenly have his new baby to take care of, the new baby called the year 2022. Well, I think maybe Mr. Albert Einstein was right with being on a fast-moving train, forever young. And everyone that is not on the train with you is growing a lot older second by second. Minute by minute. And all these endless lifetimes are ending faster than anyone ever thought they would. Anyone but you, you, the one who is forever young, on the high-speed train, speed of light train, that is taking you deeper and deeper into your night dreams. But the thing is with this story, is that this train, the high-speed train, finally does stop at a place in time, that works perfectly for you. A place you can finally call home. Yep, a beautiful little 1920s town in Lost Iowa or Ohio, where you can fall in love with everything and anything and feel safe and free. So, then you get off the train with your new baby girl and step into the perfect time and place. And wave goodbye to that speed of light train of endless, universal time frames. And then you just live there in that little town, forever and ever repeating eternal loops of happiness and love. So, what's wrong with that kind of bardo? Or whatever you want to call it. To be honest, I'm not especially fond of the Buddha, because you see he left his wife and little boy back there in the dust. Yes, he never went back for his little family. Never. Besides I see no grace in a dead mindless enlightenment, that looks forever forward at the face of the divine. So, I will take my go to hell, 
of looking back, and be a lot happier living out my eternity in that little 1920s hometown dream, called heaven. And here at the end of time, be it in Bardo, or wherever. I will say to you, that I really do, really do love you. But, if you are a big ego-minded jerk, then go ahead, and fuck off. Now on with New Year's Eve, so, as it stands let's do a little 1920s starlight. And then let's do a sober, rude wake-up call spiked with good taste and a brash afterwards bit of dark techno, and then back to some good old-fashioned music. The kind of musical nostalgia, that will finally allow us to say goodbye to the old year and hello to the brand new one, the big, new year, called 2022. So here we go with the dream kind, of the lost kind, of the brand new time called music kind. That was that was a beautiful murky. Um, thank you. Um, thank you for a lot of things that you do that you Thanks. don't always want to receive recognition for. Okay, I'm holding in my hand a 1934, I think it's 1934, uh, copy of a book called An Experiment with Time. I was talking about this by J.W. Dunn. D-U-N-N-E, I think, who was uh, many things. He was a soldier. I fought in the Boer Wars in South Africa. Uh, was an incredible fisherman, world-class fisherman, actually. He wrote book, books on fishing. I think mostly stream fishing with flies and how to tie flies. But he was also a really famous aeronautical engineer. He was a mathematician. I can't remember. Did I talk about him in my last episode? I've talked about him before. Uh a very rational person, uh, and he helped develop the modern aircraft that, that they have uh, now in, in, in Great Britain. Uh, and this is during the time, that, you know, where the Wright Wright brothers flew planes, and they're trying to modify and develop what we know now as the airplane. Uh, J.W. Dunn was a big part of that, and some of his innovations are still being used today on airplanes. Guy was... Uh, was, uh, you know, a genius in a lot of ways. But he was highly disciplined. Not into mysticism, not into reading cards, not into magic, uh, not into any of those things. But the problem with J.W. Dunn, and when you read this book and why he wrote it, was he had these profound dreams that were precognitive. So they predicted the future. And it really messed him up. Because what do you do when you're a mathematician and a rational person and you're dreaming of future events? Even exact time period, Time periods and dates, I think. And he wanted to understand why that was. And here we, here we go back to dreams again. How can we know the future? And is there a technique that we can use? That we can, that all of us, and apparently, you know, from this book and from what I ask around, a lot of people do this. It's not unusual. And that's what J.W. Dunn started to find out. But it does take a bit of discipline. And that's, uh, and what this book lays out, at least the first part of it, is how to remember your dreams and how to observe extreme detail in your dreams. And that the narrative structure of the dream is not always the most important part if you're looking into precognition that there are different things going on behind the scene or the story in a dream that, that are indeed 
from what he says in the book, Predicting the Future. And uh, I myself have talked about this several times. I've had some profound dreams that um, led me to uh, make important decisions in my life. And also I've dreamed of people before I met them. I've dreamed, uh, I've had warning dreams that um, allowed me to make decisions before something tragic happened. I don't think this is unusual. I think a lot of people have these experiences. What Dunn tries to do is he tries to lay out a discipline in which you can start to remember and observe the details of your dreams. That, that thing when people say, well, I don't dream, everyone dreams or you'd be dead. It's just, it's, it's a matter of body health, the mind health. You have to dream. And when you don't dream, and this has been proven, you, you'll die. There's a whole family of uh, people that lose their ability to have dream sleep as they grow older genetically, and they end up dying or going insane. Uh, so it, it's, it's, it's important. So we all dream, but the fact is, do we remember our dreams? And what this, what this book does is it, it, it teaches you how to uh, keep track of your dreams, how to write them down and observe details, and then see for yourself that there is precognition going on. And so it's interesting. I mean, he gets a little off into the into the into relativity. He's affected by by what he calls serialism, and he deals with uh, some. He, he tries to get mathematical with this whole thing, and I don't know if you can. I, I don't know uh, if that's completely possible. I mean, when we get into the mind and we get into emotions, these are less physical things and more mental things. And, of course, science deals in, in Newtonian physics, uh, part of it, uh, and it deals with the measurement of things in the physical realm. You, how, how else can you work? You have to measure things. You have, if you're going to build a bridge across the chasm that's four or 5,000 feet deep, well, something. there's actually one in the Grand Canyon. Um, uh, pretty, pretty scary bridge. The old one was quite scary. If you got out of your car and looked over, it drops off. Uh, I don't know, three, four thousand feet, something like that. So you got to know what the hell you're doing when you build a bridge, um, and it, and you can't get off into the realms of uh, dreams and uh, uh, non-physical things. Um, you got to you, you have to stay in the physical realm, and so I think a lot of science deals with the physical realm. When we start dealing with emotions, with mind, with with, uh, with dreams, um, with 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 feelings, and and I think humans. I don't think there's any. I don't think there's such a thing as a totally rational human because we we our mind is inside of a body. We're influenced by how our body feels. If you have cancer, if you're sick, uh, if you're on steroids, uh, if somebody uh, cuts your arm off with a sword, <laughs> it's going to affect the way you think about things. Uh, but psychology is one of those sort of. Um, fields of study that, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of times in the gray area of science. And so um, simply because it's dealing with the, you know, the mind, with, with things we can't always measure physically. But I think there's a deeper mind. And I think there's something larger and, and wider and, and more uh, timeless inside of us. And um, 
And that's why I like to talk about animals sometimes. And I spend a lot of time with wild animals, with my canine, my famous canine dingo healer, Gunner. And the thing I like about Gunner uh, that's really interesting is he is a canine. I mean, I, I, I'm around wolves, and especially around coyotes a lot. They all have a similar way of behaving and living their lives. And what Gunner insists on, and since he has, since he's been a pup, and you know, healers are known for this. Hey, don't try to make me too much of a human, because I'm canine, and I enjoy smelling things. I enjoy chasing things. I enjoy being around other dogs. I enjoy having nonverbal communication. Most of my sense is smell. Most of my, I have, I have very sensitive body. I have, and so Gunner sort of, he kind of forces you to live in his dog world. And, and he, he's only going to be human so much. You know, we, we try to make animals like us. We, you know, our cartoons and our animations uh, are, are just, Gunner will, will warn me of things. And this has just happened so many times in so many situations. I could spend the next two hours uh, giving stories about Gunner, even a couple of times actually saving my life. He just has a sense of things. And he doesn't always have to be there in the physical. It often comes in a dream. And, and, you know, I've talked about canines and dreams. My dog, Ossie, that died and, and a life after death. And this really, really powerful, uh, I don't even think it was a dream, this connection I had to her in the other world uh, and um, how profound that was. And, and, and dogs, canines, wolves are a big part of indigenous culture, especially ancient indigenous culture. That's the animal. That's the psychopomp that takes you into the land of the dead, like Anubis in the... Uh, the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Anubis is a really important deity that guides you through the judgment process and through this inner, this in-between space between when you die, go to the land of reeds, to paradise. You have this very confusing time. This judgment takes place uh, mostly by your own conscience. Uh, the, you have the um, negative confessions. You have uh, the, the Egyptians had commandments. They are very moral people, despite these movies like the Ten Commandments. When you read hieroglyphs, when you read ancient Egyptian, these are extremely moral people, and it's a big problem if you've lived a wicked life. You have to you you have to pass the judgment. And Anubis, this incredible, is not a dog. He's he's actually a Egyptian wolf. Is part of the judgment sequence. Is part of helping you through this process of when you don't have your body. And um, so dogs, and, and, and I've talked about this before, are in lots of burials. Not only here in the New World, in the Southwest, uh, the dogs are a principal important part of a burial because they, they move with you into the next world. What I begin to sense uh, is that they, I think this is how wolves and coyotes communicate with each other, is through this telepathy. Because they don't have language, they don't have the internet, they don't have text. And when they're vast distances apart, if it's from a healthy pack to another healthy pack, or, or making a new pack, there seems to be this kind of communication between uh, animals and, and between each other that are far distances apart. And I think it's through the process of dreams. I think time is a different perception, is seen differently, and space and distance with animals, and we have a lot to learn from them. And I think ancient people knew this. They knew the dog, the canine, 
the wolf, the, the coyote, the jackal was an important animal in helping you to understand things that you didn't quite see. When you, when you have a, a dog and you hunt with a dog and you travel with a dog, it, it really increases your five senses. And sometimes you feel like you have seven or eight senses. And the time factor is another thing that's, that's vastly important when you have a canine on the end of that leash or one following you. So it's, it's, it's quite interesting. And it might be that these animals know something about time travel that we don't know. And that this is sort of hinted at with, uh, with indigenous cultures, especially here in the Southwest and especially anciently, when you look at these uh, murals that were in these uh, ancient villages. Uh, the animal plays a principal part in moving through the passage of time and moving interdimensionally. Uh, it's a very key source to, to uh, understanding multiplicity of reality and multi-worlds. So often the animal, a bird or something, is... is will lead you into the next world, will lead you to learn things. Uh, and, and so that's something I wanted to bring up. But we, we get preoccupied that the gold standard is humans. And I think, I'm going to be honest with you here, I think it's bullshit. I think we need to um, get a little humble. I've been to a war and I've seen what kind of horrible things we can do. The death urge is strong in our species. There's not another more demented or sick species, I think, than humans. But there's, on the other hand, they can be very enlightened and beautiful beings. But we, we get preoccupied with the selfishness of seeing, of, of setting the standard for everything else to, to fit into. Well, it, it has to, what's intelligence? Well, let's, let's take the human, looks in the mirror and recognizes himself. So it must be this animal or this insect must be intelligent because this one doesn't notice itself in the mirror. There's no face recognition. What we're finding out is there's a, they're a lot more like us than we want to think, that we're related to them genetically, that the creator, if there's, this, and I believe there is a creator, that he's made, she's made, or whatever you want, gender you want to assign to this incredible being, similarities in all of us and that we have things to learn from each other we need each other and and i think the component of time travel is is vastly different with with different types of species and so we need to stop always setting ourselves as the gold standard but hey we do it right it's western society western culture anthropomorphize we 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 give everything a human trait a human way of thinking a human way of behaving and if it's not human we try to make it into human and we make our whole universe and world into a human way of perceiving things we're at the top of the list we know everything we're a brilliant species and and if you're not human then you're kind of less you know god is we're, we're just below the angels so, so we're, we're like God, and he's human. I don't know. I don't know about that definition. And what I'm saying is, is maybe that's the problem, is, and that's where, where I have a qualm with science. Science is a human. I mean, I know people are going to say, well, science was there before humans everywhere. We gave it that name. It's, it's done through human beings. I don't see dogs going out and performing scientific experiments making conjecture. Um, 
these are human attributes. This is the way humans measure things. This is the way humans see the world and see reality. So I, I think that's one view of things. That's one view of time. That's one view of reality. And it's so completely human, you can't get outside of it. And I, when I'm with an, an animal, an amazing animal, he's, my dog is incredibly intelligent. He hangs with coyotes, too. He likes coyotes, for the most part. I don't think you should have your dogs on leashes with coyotes, especially with wolves. And he is on a leash most of the time. But he's around wild canines a lot. And these are incredibly intelligent animals, and they're very old. They've been around in the fossil record for a long, long time. And they have a different way of reacting. They have a different way of seeing the world. You know, it's why do dogs pee everywhere? Well, there's a, you know, it has to do with the smell. It's a communication. I used to call it the, the, the new dog's newspaper. You know, you go to, we go to the, to, or we get on the internet, or CNN, or we go to the, used to go to the newspaper store, or used to go to the bookstore. You know, that's, you're getting your information from there. Well, when urine carries scent, urine carries all kinds, it's an incredible information system. And dogs know things. They even know if a dog's been there and they haven't seen him before. Because they can smell that dog, they can, they can smell the, the pheromones. They can, they sense if the dog's sick. They can, if the dog's in heat. Well, you know, maybe we we probably used to do these things more anciently, but we're preoccupied with our world, our modern world. But a dog's world, a canine's world, a bear's world is significantly different in our, And I think we have something to learn from that. And I think the way they perceive time is different. And I, and I don't think they're lower than us. I think in some ways we're on the same level, and I think in some ways they may even be more advanced than us. But we're so snobbish, we're so arrogant. You know, look at the world and what we've done to it. Look at our wars. Look what we do to each other. I'm not saying animals don't do that, but largely they don't. They don't make weapons of mass destruction. They don't torture each other. They don't go out and... And, and make a gun and kill each other. And this is not about gun control. I'm just saying humans have this very, and that's what Freud talked about. We have the death urge. We're one of those species that just, we get into killing and destroying things. Is that a defect? I think it is if it ends our planet. I think, I think, I think something's wrong there. And maybe Freud was right to some degree. So I don't want to, I mean. Keep it going. Big talker. Big Mr. Time Taker. All right. Yes, Murky, I know. Right. Uh, all right. Okay. Murky wants to go to a song. And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk a little bit. We're going to listen to, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about synchronicity. Uh, Carl Jung, the depth psychologist, had this whole interesting uh, idea about synchronicity. And, I, and we'll, in fact, We'll just listen to what he has to say about the concept and see what you think about it. And is there a deeper, larger mind underneath the surface of this conscious mind that we have, this culture that we have, this zeitgeist that I talked about last year, the zeitgeist in time. We're affected by our culture, by our religion, by our time period. Is there a part of us that's outside of that? And I think when you look at dreams and the process of dreams, you'll see that that, in effect, is what's going on. 
there's something inside of us that, that is able to go outside of the time realm as we see it right now in the USA. There's a part of us that seems to be deeper, more primitive, that seems to be connected to larger expanses of time. So um, I, I had this friend, I can't remember, it's been a while ago, and um, he was at work, I, I, I just remember where 
what he did for a job. I think he worked in a hardware store. Um, but he had time. He was taking inventory, I think it's what the deal was. And I don't remember the exact name of the store, but he was in there and he had some time. Where, and he was writing down, uh, this is before you, you know, you put everything into a little computer um, and, and scan it and stuff. You're, he's doing it by hand. And he kept jotting down um, Firestone. But it was just something abstract. So, in the, so as he, um, he even, and then he put the words fire and he put the words stone or rock and all day long he kept just, and he'd scribble it down with all, you know, with all these other things that he was writing on his inventory list that kept coming up. And, and, he, and he wasn't really fully conscious of it. He was just writing it down, scribbling it down. I don't remember just how he was putting it in his notebook, but fire stone. I don't think they had tires, but um, he, I don't remember what, it, what, what he felt like he might have been influenced by. But it wasn't something he was thinking about. It. Just, you know, when you, you do that, sometimes you're just sitting there scribbling a line. There's this whole process called automatic writing that the Cyrillists do, where you just start with a line, and then you just start, you don't really think about what you're going to do. You just start scribbling. And then scribbling turns into something. It turns into a face. turns into a house. turns into a box turns into something, you know, it turns into a dream you had. It turns into a girl you know. But it wasn't something you had in your mind originally. That's automatic writing. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a technique the Cyrillists use. And I think uh, Jung actually used that as part of his uh, idea of coming up with this whole thought of, of uh, synchronicity. Anyway, so Firestone. He kept writing this down. <laughs> and so he got through his work, you know, turned all his stuff in. He's done with inventory. He took his... His, his uniform and stuff off, and then he got in his car, turned it on, pulled out of the parking lot, and then pulled on to the main drag and then started heading home. Uh, stopped at a, I think he said a intersection, turned on his radio, uh, the light turned green, and then he, you know, gave a gas and he proceeded forward. And he got going kind of fast because he wanted to pass this guy in front of him that was, that was going slow. So he, he gives a gas, had a little bit of power. So I got around the Volkswagen Beetle or whatever it was and, and then proceeded down the road and then BAM! He gets this, he gets a flat tire in the front. And when you get a flat tire in the front, it can roll your car. So he, he, he takes, he fights at the steering wheel, he, he pulls over to the side of the road and he had the most awful blowout. In fact, he was on his rim. It was so bad. Just ripped his tire apart and blew out. And he said he just sat there in his car in shock. You know, he got off into the shoulder and the traffic's going by and people are honking. He's like, God, what the, you know, what the hell? He gets out of his car. He's just relieved that, he's, that he didn't roll the car. He's still alive because, you know, he's in traffic. So he walks around and, you know, his car, the suspension's all messed up because there's not a tire on the front. He's just on his rim, you know, and so it's, it's lower on that part of the car than the part where he gets out of. He walks around, and he gets there, and he looks at his tire, and he's like, oh, my God, this is the worst blood I've ever seen. And then he said he looked, and he could see the word Firestone. <laughs> I mean, he knew he had Firestone tires, but he didn't. It just suddenly it struck him, oh, my God, I've been writing that word on my in my notebook or, you know, my ledger here with all this inventory over and over. But there was the word Firestone. So, obviously, that's precognition. There's a warning built into that. 
So, so what in him knew that that was going to happen? And that's kind of dealing with this whole thing with um, synchronicity. And then I think Jung, Jung explained synchronicity. Let's see. I'm trying to think of the exact way that Jung defined that. Um, to describe a circumstance that appears meaningfully related, yet lacks a causal connection. So, you know, there's A and there's B and there's C, and this is kind of how things are, are working. You, you go to work. You get through with work, you go home, you put your keys in ignition, um, and, and, and you drive drive your car, you know, home. So there's all these, it's just this, and, and you know, one thing causes another. But in, in, in that middle of that, if something is happening that's not really connected, you know, like the, he's writing down the word Firestone over and over, and it doesn't have anything to do with anything causal, he's just writing it down. What's... What's getting him to write that down? Where's the precognition coming from? Now, there is some, there is some uh, science on that that says we have to make a sort of connection, intuitive connection between things and then the causal event. I mean, there, there is that. You know, intuition uh, based on, on putting things together that could happen. Maybe something in him sensed that he, he should have changed his tires. Although, I remember him saying his tires were brand new. So he got a crap tire. Or, or they were pretty close to being new. He was pretty upset. And in fact, he had a warranty and he had to replace the tire. But something sensed that something wasn't right or something was going to happen. So that's kind of the my way of explaining synchronicity. You can look it up and read it on, on Wikipedia. And See, I have a certain thought. Um, at the same time, something else, quite independently, happens that portrays just that uh, thought. Yeah. For instance, just so I speak of a, of a, of a red uh, car, and at that moment a, a red car comes here. Yes. Now, I haven't seen it. It was impossible because it was behind the building. In this moment, the red car appears. We can't say, now this car has appeared because here was a uh, some remarks have been made about the red car. Yeah. It's not cause and effect. Oh, this is yes. a miracle that yes. the red car appears. It is not it is chance, yes. just chance. But these chances happen uh, more, uh, more often than chance allows. Yes. And that shows that there is something behind it. So that was Carl Jung himself. Somewhere in the 19, uh, late 1950s, I think, towards the end of his life. So, synchronicity is the term he gave this unusual event that's not causal. I mean, it isn't A to B. It just kind of pops up and, and suddenly something else happens. And, and, every, and people have this, have this, you know, have these, has this happened to them? The term he used is synchronicity, but almost all of us have had this, this event happen. You know, why am I thinking of this? Why does the number 12 in my mind? Why is it number 28? Why do I keep thinking of Susie today? You know, and then you find out Susie broke her leg or something. And in the middle of what all the other causal things, A, B, C, and D are doing, here's this crazy sudden occurrence, you know, that predicts, that's precognitive. It predicts something's going to happen. So, yeah, there's a lot of crazy stuff with that and interesting. So look it up and enjoy it. I think the police, the group, the police even did a song called Synchronicity, didn't they? <laughs> okay.
Okay, but I think the point here is time. I mean, how we perceive time, how we perceive the world. Is there a larger and deeper mind inside? It's like Jung termed that the unconscious mind. That's his term for it. But is there something that when we dream, when we sense things, when we have precognition that allows us to make intuitive leaps, that allows us to, to sometimes... And that's what J.W. Dunn, he actually dreamed of very um, catastrophic events that happened. I think reading the, the headline of a newspaper had the exact date and day. I have to go back and look at that. And he dreamed it quite a while before it happened. I mean, that's just, that's not causal. That's or something, it's, it's like skipping things. You know, it's like, how can you look into the future? And this is a guy that's not a seer. He's not reading cards. He's not a, he's not Doctor Strange. <laughs> he's just he's a he's a rational aeronautical engineer, and he's having these dreams that really twist and turn his life in these ways he doesn't want to go. And I think he even rest, restrained himself from talking about this publicly because he had to guard his professionalism. So. So, so beyond, beyond uh, what we've been talking about, uh, um, dreams, uh, precognition, uh, synchronicity, uh, things that are a little maybe out of the scientific realm, maybe a lot, um, let's, let's briefly talk about it. Is, is there a possibility of, it's just, we're just really uh, dated. We, we haven't really reached uh, the time where we can create something like a real time machine. We don't have the science. I mean, we, didn't, we couldn't build an atomic bomb back in, you know, 1250 A.D. Maybe people thought about a doomsday device, but they couldn't build one. It's just, it just was way beyond any, anything we had. It was even before the age of reason. It was even, you know, things have to move along, and it takes a long time to... To get to the point where something like a, a proton or an atom can be used to nuclear fission to produce this incredible flash of burning, flaming light that can be catastrophic. So let's uh, let's listen to this piece and let's see what you think. It's highly entertaining by a highly entertaining person, and I think you'll enjoy it. So sit back, uh, have a nice snack or drink, and or or wake up a little bit from your sleep. And, and and listen to this. It's it's pretty good. Time so can can we make a time machine? I want to introduce a, a new notion or a, a a notion I've been working on recently, <clears throat> and maybe you can help me with it. I'm not entirely satisfied with it, but I'm more satisfied with it than some people. <laughs> <clears throat> and it goes like this: If what we are caught in See, uh, my problem was always I saw this tremendous transformation ahead of us. But I always, as strong as my intuition of the transformation, was also my resistance to the miraculous. So that I didn't want the transformation to be that ships the size of New Jersey come from the galactic center and appear over every city on it, or that 
Atlantis rises from beneath the waves and the crystal tablets reveal the correct agenda. Or I, I always thought that these things were sort of hokey. And so as a rationalist, as an ex-Catholic, I was trying to imagine uh, the incorporeal essence walking around on city streets. And, and how could that happen? Well, the clue was given to me recently when I was asked to review uh, a book that uh, hasn't been published yet, but will be soon, and I urge you all to get it. It's just a hoot. Friend of mine, um, Nick Herbert, the outlaw physicist, as he loves to call himself. And the book, if it's titled as tentatively titled, will be called Faster Than Light. And it was sent to me by the publisher, so I would say something nice about it, and, uh, and they would put it on the back. And uh, he did, I am a connoisseur of faster-than-light schemes, as uh, probably most of us were when we were 14 years old. And let me tell you, this guy has dug up stuff you have never heard of. Uh, it, it's not the old... Minnie is in a ship A, Maxie is in ship B, they pass each other, each going the same. No, it's much better than that. But one of the things that he talked about was the feasibility of time machines. And uh, I uh, have always been interested in uh, the, the Mandayan cosmology which Mandayans are a, a sect that arose probably around Jerusalem somewhere in the early Christian era. They claim they were founded by John the Baptist, but who knows. But anyway, they can be traced back to that milieu. And over the centuries, they've had many wanderings and peregrinations and settled eventually, uh, probably to their regret, in the swamps of Iraq and Iran some three centuries ago, and what shape they are in in the aftermath of this war, I have not heard, I have no idea. Perhaps they're extinct. It cannot have been a happy experience for them. But anyway, very rich, very old tradition, and they have the notion in their cosmology of a messiah, which they call the secret Adam. And uh, the secret Adam will come at the end of the world, and the Mandayan uh, notion of what's going on is that we all have a soul made of light and the light is trapped in matter. This universe is not our home. This universe is a, a kind of hell in which we wander and the purpose of religion is to teach people about the light inside themselves and how to gather it together and how to get it out of this universe uh, and into our rightful home, which is a much better place. Okay, So the Mandayan uh, uh, eschaton is that uh, this messiah called the secret Adam will come, but what's unusual is that the secret Adam teaches no message, has no point of view, but builds a machine. They specifically say this. Builds an object of some sort 
and the object operationally could be described as a light pump. The light pump of the Mandayan Messiah then gathers the light of all souls that have lived or are living and transmits the light first to the sun, no, first to the moon, then to Venus, then to the sun, and then out of this universe entirely to the higher and hidden presence of the All-Father. Well, this is very interesting, especially to me because I have very deeply ingrained in me the idea that these messianic scenarios, these end-of-the-world scenarios, are visions of future events being picked up by various holy seers, men and women of great uh, depth of inner vision, and the Mandayan one, to my mind, is the only one that specifically mentions the building of an object rather than a moral reform of some sort. So I want to put out to you a, a notion that is definitely embryonic, but promising. And the idea came to me from Nick Herbert's book. It, although just a few lines and rip him to the bone. <laughs> but he, he asked the question, he wants to talk about time machines, and the first question he asks is, well, uh, obviously if time travel were to be discovered at any point in the future, uh, how come we don't see time travelers? Why aren't they coming and going? Tell me, and let me see if you got it right. <laughs> because uh, just like there are uh, um, uh, waveforms and currents and eddies in the ocean or something, uh, this particular time we're in, historical time, is a time in, in which uh, time machines don't seem to work too well. But time before this and after this, maybe they work quite well, so people can go back and forth, but they can't go through this part because it's the wrong kind of current. B plus. <laughs> Close. Well, that's the paranoid theory. <laughs> that, in fact, there are time machines, and if you only knew where to look or who to ask, you would find that they're whizzing by. But this gentleman comes much closer to it, and you'll love the simplicity of this, I hope. The reason we don't see time machines coming and going is because we live in an era before time machines. <laughs> and no time machine can go back in time earlier than the moment of the invention of the first time machine. So I had never considered this before and found it very interesting <clears throat> and so I I uh, tried to imagine what would it then be like to be involved in the invention of the first time machine because as you know when we were in the Amazon in 1971 we attempted to build what we called a trans-dimensional vehicle and we stressed that it would be basically a spaceship because we're spatial monkeys and that was how we thought of it. But if you're really going to make good on a trans-dimensional vehicle, you also have to have a gear which takes you not to our tourists but to yesterday. And so um, I, I tried to envision what this uh, 
moment of constructing and launching the first time machine would be like. And I came up with a scenario something like this. It's late December of 2012 A.D. And uh, <clears throat> at uh, the World Temporal Studies Institute on the banks of the Agaraparana in central Amazonas, technicians are putting the final touches on uh, the first time machine. And uh, the uh, uh, chief scientist chosen to pilot the time machine into the future is just donning her uh, time suit and being escorted to the cockpit and uh, the hatches are being closed and the system checked out. Finally, everything is perfect. Just as dawn begins to break over the jungle, the button is pushed and uh, this woman sails off into the future. And there have been no prototypes, there have been no partial mock-ups, no preliminary tests, because in the nature of the thing, it just can't be done that way. Now, my, my question, most people, I think, at this point would want to know, would want to follow this woman's career. What does she see as she moves off into the future? And, uh, and uh, what paradoxes does it generate? My concern was not with that. I wish her luck and turn my attention elsewhere, specifically back to the laboratory. I wanted to know what happens at that moment. And the first thing that occurred to me was, it seemed obvious, suddenly all over the earth, time machines will appear, coming from all sectors of the future. Why? Because they want to see the first voyage into time. They want to be present at this momentous event. It's as if you had an airplane that could travel in time. Well, this is a mixed metaphor, but wouldn't you fly to Kitty Hawk to be there to see the first powered flight of an of a, of a aircraft? So at first I imagined that the skies and freeways of Earth would fill with travelers coming from the far future to, to explore the membrane, the, because that's uh, <clears throat> the end of the road for time travelers. They can't go further back because before that moment, time machines were impossible and didn't exist. And I was troubled by this little science fiction scenario, and I couldn't quite put my finger on what the problem was. And then as I smoked more, <laughs> I realized that uh, the problem was that uh, in, in what is the undoing of all time travel scenarios is the, what's called the kill your own grandfather paradox. This is very simply stated and I'm sure familiar to most of you. If time travel were possible, I could go back in time and shoot my grandfather. If I shoot my grandfather, I, uh, my, my mother is never born, therefore I am never born, therefore how could I go back in time and shoot my grandfather? I couldn't, therefore time travel is impossible. And I realized that in the kind of scenario I've just described to you, the grandfather paradox would come into play because someone in 
uh, century eight after time travel, century eight ATT, could go back to century seven ATT and kill their grandfather and therefore not exist and therefore set the paradox in motion. So I ruminated on this problem and finally I understood or I, I at least had the illusion of understanding uh, how to resolve this paradox and how to solve a whole bunch of problems that I hadn't realized were even associated with what I was thinking about and it is this. That was Terence McKenna the psychedelic visionary. Um, he's, he's an author, intellectual, um, ethnobotanist, shaman, a uh, pretty interesting and entertaining person. He died of cancer, maybe even brain cancer, uh, in the end of his life uh, at a very young age. Well, not very young, but uh, he still had a lot of time left um, in the year 2000. It's pretty entertaining. The time machine. Hmm. Maybe we, maybe science is yet to to understand fully what 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 time travel is all about and its possibilities. The grandfather problem, as he discusses, is is a huge um, obstacle we got to, we have to overcome. And uh, if we if we if we can't do that, then the possibility of traveling backwards is just very remote.
I want to share an experience. I'm going to talk about two things here. I have hesitations about sharing this experience. It's very, um, very personal to me and to uh, my girlfriend at the time, who's still a very dear and close friend of mine. Um, I'm not going to mention her name. Uh, I, I love her a lot. We're really close. Um, we've had a lot of unusual experiences. And you can take this for for what it is, I guess. But when I first met this person, we didn't know each other too well. I met her at a bus station later. She came to my house. And um, I can't remember when. A lot, a lot of different things were hap had happened. and We traveled a lot around the Southwest. And, um, did some documentary work and um, but one of the one of the evenings maybe it was a daytime uh, she was in my living room and uh, she's like can you get you know give me a give me a hug Dave and so um, I gave her a big hug and as I was hugging her she's quite a bit shorter than me <laughs> but as I put my arms around her and held her um, Suddenly, I, I wasn't there anymore. I mean, literally, I was in another time period. It was like I was, re I think, better put, I was recalling a very vivid dream in extreme detail, but it was just so real. And I was in New York City. I, I remember that was the city I was in. And, and, and the traffic to cars and people walking. It was in the 1920s. Uh, early 1920s, and, um, and, and there, this, there's this whole story. I mean, I, I felt my life in that time period. Um, I knew I had a girlfriend, um, and I can't remember if we were married or, but we were really close. And, and I think either we were, we were married or we we're going to get married. And so, in, when I'm hold, when I'm holding her in the present tense. And I moved back into this different time period. You know, it's just really almost vision-like. And, and I'm walking down the hallway of, of this beautiful uh, hotel. And um, it's carpeted. And I'm going to my apartment. And I know my girlfriend's waiting for me there. And I and I can see that I have I have these leather shoes on and I have a suit on, and I'm walking down um, the hallway and I go to there's a, several doors along the hallway. And, uh, it's it's Art Deco, so and, and the time period is just very different and it's kind of dark. There's not a lot of lights, but there is a lighted windows at both ends of the hallway. And I go down the hallway and I go up to my door, and it's open. Yeah, it's not locked. And I thought that was a little strange. And so I walk in, and then the, the, car, the carpet's gone, and I'm on a hardwood floors, and there's big windows that overlook the city. I think this is a Manhattan, actually. Uh, but it looks vastly different than it does now. But it's, it's New York City. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty high. I think I'm up 10 stories, maybe. And I have a beautiful uh, living room. It's very familiar to me because you know, that's where I live. And uh, as I open the door and I walk 
around the door on the floor is my girlfriend and she's dead and she's laying in the puddle of blood. It's awful. And, and uh, I'm going to stop there because it's kind of emotional. And so this memory, it, it, it actually, time changed. changed. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm giving a person a hug that doesn't last very long, my, my girlfriend. But in, in the memory, there's a lot of time that takes place. I mean, I go through a significant amount of time that lets me know, uh, that lets me know this is my life and this is who I am. And so it's it's a really emotional experience, and I hold her, and, and I know I just know without a doubt that the person I'm holding is that person back in that time period. And it just it's just it's just a really powerful emotional experience. And I don't I don't say anything to her. I don't I don't say anything at all. Um, and she looks up at, uh, up at me as you know I'm holding her. She said, "Dave, what's wrong?" And I said, oh, I said, I'm just, you know, no, I'm just, I'm just thinking about stuff. She's like, what are you thinking about? And so I looked at her and I said, well, um, I almost said her name. I said, I just had this really deep memory of you. And then she said, she, she stopped me and minutes before I could finish this, she said that, that we were together in a previous time period. I said, yeah. She said, I know. She said, I, I know, we, 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 were, we were lovers and we're going to get married. And she said, I have a memory of that too, Dave. And it's just this really, <laughs> this really powerful uh, experience that without me telling her everything, she already knew about it. Now you can say, well, that's just a romantic notion. You guys, you know, everybody says, oh, I remember you from a long time ago. And, um, you know, that's, that's the baseline premise to how many romantic novels and movies. But where do romances and novels and movies come from? Where do stories come from? It's not just a Hollywood thing. Where, you know if you're a writer, especially if you're a screenwriter, you borrow ideas from books and journals. And other people have had these ex other people have had experiences sometimes that are based on real life events. It isn't just a movie. These are experiences that are not that unusual, I don't think. But it's my personal experience. And so there's a lot of other experiences that we share with each other. We'll always be close no matter what. I mean, I just, I love her. It doesn't mean I'm going to get married to her, and it doesn't mean I might not even see her for a while. We, we usually talk, and usually this time of year, um, but, so what does that mean? Where do, what does that say about time? Is that reincarnation? I don't know. I don't even know if I, if I believe in reincarnation. But, but, or is that an alternate reality? And, and uh, um, that's, that's kind of, I, I think the time machine doesn't have to be mechanical, doesn't have to be physical. And that's where I want to talk about the next place we're going. I went to this, I've talked about this in several uh, broadcasts and episodes. When you're on these deep, when you're using these deep, per profound, hallucinogenic um, uh, plant medicines like ayahuasca and yopo and bryola, and there's, there's several other, and these are really powerful. And they, these things 
can take you into this element of time. If you, uh, you, you remember that uh, Terrence McKinnon mentioned when they were in the Amazon basin uh, and, and they started to experiment with time and time travel. And then these guys, uh, these guys experimented with um, hallucinogenics. They experimented with meditation. They experimented with just about everything to see if they could move through time. If they could um, travel uh, through the universe. I, I don't know. Anyway, there's four and a half hours of these tapes that are now online YouTube. And if you want to get a mind-blower experience, listen to Terrence McKenna, his, whose brother's Dennis McKenna. And there's a couple other people there. Listen to that whole whole four and a half hours. You won't be able to stop listening. It's just absolutely fascinating. And anyone that's done these profound hallucinogenics knows that some that that reality is complete your reality that you know the nine to five reality is completely and utterly shattered. Especially if you have a really deep episode. Not everybody has these. A lot of times people have experiences even with ayahuasca where they stay on the surface. If you do these things and do them a lot there's some very interesting states of mind that take place. Have, has anybody seen that movie, Altered States? Uh, by, uh, I can't remember the director. It's a little crazy, but it's worth watching. I think it's based on, um, I mean, a person wants to go back into his primal self and isolate the most primal aspects of his self. And so he, he, he uh, if you've seen it, he... He goes into these isolation tanks. He doesn't do do hallucinogenics, but he puts himself in these isolation tanks, which was a big deal back in the 70s. I'm trying to remember the person that wrote the novel that this movie's based on. He's a famous uh, psychedelic um, visionary too, uh, but he's all he was also a scientist. Oh, well, it'll come to me in a minute. Um, but that's that's a pretty profound movie, and it kind of it kind of the thing I like about it is it looks into these hallucinogenic states and traveling into these other realms, and I think it kind of does a pretty good job. And um, and so we're, oh <laughs> okay, Mark, yes, yes, um, right. We're, we're gonna we're gonna go to a, a song here, and then I'm gonna come back with another. Uh, share another experience which I think maybe in previous broadcasts I've talked a little bit about time travel um, the possibilities um, synchronicity dreams can we can we travel in dreams can can we can we have experiences beyond the supposed cemented nine to five reality is that more deception and more illusion than we think it is? I think right now a lot of us are entertaining this idea with AI and with with um, propaganda, with uh, with the internet, and with uh, you know videos, and with all these things going on. Just how completely fake reality can be, and how we are programmed to think something's real and it's not. And I talk about this often, having been to Dave, a war. Dave, not the war now, too. Yes, <laughs> Okay, we're gonna we're gonna go song. Let me just finish this thought. Having been to a war, I know about propaganda. I came home, and people did not see what we seen that were over there in the war. I even watched the president of the United States lie on TV. <laughs> I guess I should be careful when I say lie. Maybe maybe he was trying to protect the American public. I don't know. But I learned quickly this whole the whole power of propaganda to make to manufacture reality.
to manufacture the public conscience of what they, you know, and this is what you do in, in wars, especially if the war, if it's your war, if you're invading a country, if you're killing people, you know, you have the propaganda. You know, what is what kind of propaganda does Ukraine have? What kind of propaganda does Russia have? Is Ukraine, you know, how much money is Ukraine going to get to fight the war? How much can they convince the world they need this money? How much can Russia convince China? How much can, you know, there's all these things that propaganda plays a role, especially in shortwave radio because you have jamming of frequencies. And if you get on shortwave radio and listen to some of these countries' stations and their, and their formats, oh my God, it's just continual propaganda. And this is what people are hearing because you hearing in those countries where the wars are going on, I was in one, is you have a radio blackout. And if you do get any kind of a radio signal public-wise, you're going to hear what the invader wants you to hear. You're going to hear your country's side. So, and I think we're really starting to, you know, what's fake and what's real? And, 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 and how much can you, what's on the stage? So anyway, having said that, okay, Murky, let's go to, let's go to a song. Happy 2424. And we're, here we go to a nice song from Sears. No. <laughs> no, most Sears are close, I'm sorry to say. Right, Murky? You don't like Sears? Sears sucks the big one. You never like Sears? Not really. <laughs> I thought you said you liked Sears beer. Well then, maybe I could take a six-pack of Sears beer. If it comes with a beautiful guy. Some Sears beer then, right? <laughs> Just like my new Sears bra for a flat-chested woman that sleeps in the buff. Oh my God. <laughs> All right, we're going to song. Okay, Doc, it's time for Hot One Silver Machine on Weekend Music Radio. <laughs>
Silver Machine. A song from a way back when. I can't remember now. <laughs> okay, Murky, when was that when was that song when did that song come out? Oh, the band Hawkwind originally released the single UK song, Silver Machine in nineteen seventy two. Okay. All right. Nineteen seventy two. Right. So kind of a kind of a trippy song. So um we, we played uh the shortwave radio uh, recording of that, and, and then the station uh, in Scotland that uh, gave you a little history of that song and how strange it looks on the rainbow meter. And it looks really weird, let me tell you. Uh, and um, it's, it has a signature, you know, songs and voices and sounds have signatures in that rainbow spectrum meter. If you don't know what I'm talking about, a lot of shortwave radios now have this beautiful meter in, in colors. And it builds up in each and shows you uh, if there's a broadcast or there's a sound going on. And a lot of these have their own signature. And that song in particular has a really bizarre one. <laughs> and then we switch to uh, the actual recording so you could hear the song, uh, the, the studio version of the song without all the interference on the shortwave radio. <laughs> okay, so I hesitate whenever uh, I start trying to explain... Uh, experiences in the psychedelic realm especially the ayahuasca realm or the yopo realm i i uh, i'm a frequent user of yopo i would not suggest any of the listeners to go out and use this stuff unless you know what the hell you're doing please okay i i you know my friends know me i'm not into selection uh, of i'm not into saying hey go do you know go do hallucinogenics in fact i strongly warn against it I have deep reservations about telling people to do hallucinogenics, especially because of my medical background. People can have allergies, they can have seizures. Uh, I like, I like, I, I pointed this out when I went to Peru. Uh, I talked to a few of my friends, and they mentioned that when you uh, do an ayahuasca experience, you have to see a psychologist, and you have to see a medical doctor, and you have to get the, you have to get the big check. There, uh, you know, this person's okay from both those before the shaman will come and get, administer ayahuasca to you. I think that's wise. I think you got to be really careful. I think just listening to people and getting, oh, it was profound. It changed my life. Oh, it sucked. Oh, I've done ayahuasca too. There's a guy on YouTube. He's done the ayahuasca 200 times. He knows everything. It's, you got to be careful of stuff like that. I give really strong warnings against it. So I'm not saying, you know, is it sensational? Yeah. Is it is it frightening as hell? Oh, yeah. Can it kill you? It has killed a few people. Yeah. Um, I, you know, people used to be this big scare about LSD acid, which I think is ridiculous. I, and again, you, I warn against stuff like that. Uh, that it damages your cell and your genet, you know, your genetics, and that's pretty much bullshit. And that, you know, that's, but it can be a radical experience, and it can harm you psychologically if you're not careful. But things like ayahuasca and yopo are, for me, a lot a lot deeper and more profound experience and, it, and you have to be careful so having said that i would suggest don't go out and do that unless you absolutely know it's something you want to do unless you do a lot of research before i started doing hallucinogenics i did research for over a year yeah i did a lot of intense research and then i microdosed to see what i because i have a lot of severe allergies 
extreme allergies that can cause me all kinds of problems. I have an allergy to pot, to uh, marijuana. Not all of it, but I do have allergies to it, and it can really mess with me. It can cause a lot of problems, like a deep paranoia and um, psychotic episodes to some degree, depending on what kind and what version it is and how much. So I have to be really careful. And it's largely due to having allergic reactions to it. I can even get to where I can't breathe. So, folks, you got to be careful with this stuff. So I microdosed to find out how I could do, how I would do with this stuff. And it, it was helpful. So I don't need huge doses like a lot of people do. I get off on really small doses. Okay, I give them my warnings. Don't go out and do this stuff, okay? Unless you know what the hell you're doing. I don't want you to. And I think some people should never, ever, 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 ever do this stuff. Ever. It's just not meant for them. They don't need to do it. I have indigenous native friends that they have other ways to obtain these same, to go and to journey into these same places without using ayahuasca or yopo. Even without using peyote, which in the American Native American church is something they use. And there's also a lot of extreme discipline and deep cultural knowledge, thousands of years old, that goes along with using these things. Tribes have been using these for thousands of years. For, through simple trial and error alone, they know what you should and shouldn't do. And we have short lifetimes. And why knock your head against the wall? Or why end up in the emergency room? And I have been in the emergency room on a doctora overdue dose. Overdose. <laughs> Frightening as hell. Absolutely one of the most terrifying experiences of my entire life. I almost died. Don't fuck with that stuff, okay? I know people do, and they're okay, and they have something, and it doesn't hurt them, but you don't know that about yourself. And I think it's a fool that tries to convince you of, this is hey, this is what it did for me, and this will do for you. Be careful. Find a shaman, a good one that's qualified good medicine man don't just go out and do this stuff because it can be really dangerous so i could care okay. less <laughs> i know murky you just you just eat everything right and, and blow everything up <laughs> yeah maybe not everybody has the constitution that murky has. pretty much <laughs> i don't know how a little woman like you that's less than five feet tall and 100 pounds can do all this <laughs> You do. So okay. I guess you're probably All right, right. So another song? Yeah. Okay, we're gonna do another song and I'll come back to my, my experience on 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 the Iopo. Okay. <laughs>
profound, amazing universe that we don't know a lot about. Even now, with all our science and technology. You know, people look back 100 years from now, 500 years from now, it's not going to be that impressive what we have now. And I think there's a lot of things yet to come. And I think alternate realities, I think alternate worlds, I think alternate ways of being conscious, I think animals, I think plants, we're going to learn a lot of things about this incredible planet we live on and this incredible universe that we're a part of. And I think thinking that we know everything, that we're so advanced, that we're such a, we're so amazing as human beings is a huge flaw. And we might, hopefully, we don't have to learn that the hard way and do some really stupid things before we reach what I think. I really feel there's the potential to have a golden age on the planet. And I think we may be heading in that direction. But maybe we're going to have to learn some hard things first. Do we know everything? Hell no. <laughs> There's no way. You know, it's like being back in the Dark Ages, even the Renaissance, and thinking that was the pinnacle of human achievement. It was, in some ways, amazing but it was just it's profoundly old-fashioned now we've learned a lot and then we're still going to learn a lot so i like talking about some of the things and thinking about them and realizing that there's so much we don't know this isn't to say science is a bunch of crap because it's not it's important but it's important to find balance in there not be too extreme on either side esoteric Mysticism, science, I think there's a lot of these. I think they, they kind of move around inside of each other if they let themselves. Hey, big boy, I think it's time to move forward now. So, this experience. Yes, Mercury. <laughs> no. 
So this experience, uh, I think in a previous episode, I mentioned that it was uh, ayahuasca. And ayahuasca is a substance you drink, and it's, it's two basic plants with several other plants added, depending on where you're at and what shaman is doing. And you drink this nasty <laughs> stuff that tastes like drinking a gallon of the forest or something. I don't know. But Yopo Anadanthra Pedagrina is a really powerful snuff that's taken from uh, a tree that uh, has those, um, those seed pods. And then you make them into a snuff that you blow in sulfate up your nose. And it can give you an extreme ayahuasca-like experience that isn't near as long, about an hour typically. And it has different stages you go through when you take it. It's something that um, I have a deep relationship with and a lot of trial and error. I've, through a lot of trial and error, I've learned a lot. And from friends I've learned a lot, from tribal friends I've talked to, have taught me a lot. Um, it's taken a long time to understand that. But this is the plan I was dealing with that night. And I used a really powerful amount of this, of this snuff. I'm not suggesting for you to do this, please. Because um, like ayahuasca, the initial stages are extremely, extremely frightening. For me, I go through a death phase. I, I go through a, a part, this isn't for everybody, where uh, I have the death experience. I die. Not pleasant. In fact, incredibly frightening. So, and this isn't with everybody, but it's, it's an experience with me. So you talk about terrifying, and you talk about sobering. Yeah, it's all that and a lot more. So you have to go through that initial stage, among other things. The psychedelic stage, of the thousands of spinning, firing, exploding objects. I don't know. I'm going to skip all that. So having went through all these phases, all these phases, having went through what I said... One, two, uh, three phases for me. You finally enter into the deep state where everything becomes sort of a blissful experience. I don't know if I want to use blissful. Where you breach the corridor of reality. Where, the, where, for lack of a word, the universe opens itself up to you, which is not exactly pleasant because there's a lot of stuff out there. And most of it's not human. Uh, so... I, I, I hesitate to say it's pleasant and blissful, but it can be incredibly beautiful and incredibly enlightening and, and life-changing. So, on one night in particular, I got in a very profound, deep state in the um, Yopo reality, and I, I came to uh, these this place where these there are these orifices, you know, organic openings. There was, you know, I don't remember. It seemed like there was four or five of them. They're like doorways or passages. And you know, and I often say this reality is more real than the nine to five reality. I mean, this is a touchable reality. It's it's you know, you're there, and you can smell and you can feel, and I'm not. I'm not. I, I'm not conscious of of 
of the nine to five reality. I'm in this place. And so, and I, and I don't know if it has a name. And there's these orifices that are opening and closing as if something's breathing. But I can see a kind of light of day through some of them. And I feel guided to walk through one of them. And I walk through it. And I, I can hear the traffic. I can hear people talking. I can hear all the sounds of a city. And I'm on a porch that's over the uh, main corridor of the city and for all intents and purposes I'm pretty sure it's Paris France and I've never been to Paris France but you know it's I'm there and I'm looking out and this is like this is a current time period so I'm looking out I can feel the light and the sun and I'm there I can feel the I can feel the patio under my feet I can hear people talking in the apartment I'm in and, and, and I, but I get this feeling it's not me. I mean, it is me, but I don't have my, I have a different face. I have a different body. And, and, I, and, I, and I have a feeling I can just keep going. I don't have to go back out. That I'm here and I can stay there. But something in me says, you know, Dave, you need come back out. You, you don't, we, you know, I want to show you something. And, and, and so, I go back through the orifice and come back to this place where I can see the, these openings breathing, you know, opening and closing, opening and closing. And, and, and this is like tissue, it's like flesh. But and it's, it's, it's strange, it's not quite that. And there's other orifices. And I go into other sections and other places. And for all intents and purposes, I realize, hey, I can travel to all these different places. And I realize, too, there's time periods there. 1850s, 1860s, uh, 1930, um, 1200 AD. I don't know. Uh, there's just there, there's all these different possibilities, and they're extremely real and distinct. Okay, I'm going to stop there. I've explained this in other episodes. This, 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 it's hard to do, and this can go on for a long time. It's showing you the possibilities that are there. And I'm not the only one. There's lots and lots of people that's had these experiences and even more profound than this. And it really makes you wonder who, who in God's name got the idea that this is reality. You know, this, this, this thing that we're living in called the United States, called your job. I, I mean, I, I'm not saying it's, it's horrible. I mean, sometimes it's good. This is my country. I love the United States. But there's a lot of things I don't like about it. But who in God's name decided that this is the ultimate reality, this is the ultimate country, that this is what it is, that this is, this get real. I just, I, I think it's, 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 it's a sort of propaganda, it's a sort of programming. It's how you program somebody, it's what you think is reality. It's what you've been around since you've been little, but that doesn't necessarily make it true for everybody else. And being a person that travels to different cultures, especially here in the Southwest, with very ancient cultures like the Zuni, the Hopi, the Dene, and other real grand tribes, these people have been here a really, really long time. And they have some profound things to say to us about what is reality. The ancestral Pueblo, the people that were here, that were pre-Hopi, pre-Zuni, these migrating clans, 
these other groups like in Chaco Canyon we don't fully understand were extremely advanced from what they say, from what is known. They were time travelers. They used hallucinogenics. They moved from reality to reality. They were very advanced individuals. Just because they were in the past doesn't mean that they weren't connected somehow to, to something we're not even connected to currently. I'm not a 
Listening to Late Nights on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley. You're listening to Late Nights on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley. We're going to, uh, um, let me adjust this microphone here. Murky, you got the old microphone that works. <laughs> I got this new thing. Anyway, I got to adjust it a little bit. Um, we're going to play uh, uh, another Murky short piece from one of her previous um, broadcasts. I, I, I really like it, and I like the way she reflects back on things and uses them. So is it okay, Murky, if we play that? I guess. <laughs> Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. We'll be back uh, after after uh, we play this bit with Murky and, and then probably a song after that, and then we'll come back and close things up on uh, New Year's Day, two thousand and twenty-four. So, uh, okay, hang in there. Here we go. Do endings come? I suppose so. But as it goes, we don't generally expect them to. At least most of us don't, anyway. I will confess. There are those gifted people that supposedly have insight into the future. Some are liars without a doubt. While others just make it up as they go along. Then of course there are those charismatic people that somehow get us to believe everything. Even when they're full of shit, we still fall at their feet and kiss away. Finally, after narrowing the list down, there really does seem to be a few people that seem to know something about the future. Genuine clairvoyance. But to be honest I think doomsday prophets come a dime a dozen, and most are fake as hell. I have had a few boyfriends in the past, that have predicted everything was going to end. Anything, to get me back in bed with them again. Or to do their dishes and wash their clothes. Typically, I'm sweet enough to believe it sometimes. But after a while most of their predictions about the future, just turn out to be nothing more than cold-hearted manipulations. You know, from a person that wants everything for themselves, and nothing for anyone else. And sadly, sometimes underneath all that wanting, it just ends up being a lot of cold, raw fear. Look, 
I'm more than happy to play mommy if I'm really in love with someone. We all need an extra mother or a father sometimes. I just don't need someone breastfeeding on me 24 sevenths. Especially when they are 29 years old, 35 or even 40. I did meet a tarot card reader once, he seemed pretty authentic. And wasn't even slightly attracted to me. He was dark as hell too. And as it was, he told me things about myself no one else could have known. Among other things, he told me I would have an accident by railroad tracks. I asked, so where are the railroad tracks? And when will it happen? He just shrugged his shoulders and said, I don't know. But it will happen. I thought what a stupid pathetic generalization. I wanted to slap his face. I gave him the 50 bucks I couldn't afford. And then slammed his tarot card reading door behind me. A month or so later when the power to my car suddenly went out, and the crossing guards came down and the bells and lights started going. When in panic I looked up, and seen the speeding train in the distance, almost to my car. Suddenly I remembered what the tarot card reader had told me about the accident. Oh. I didn't tell you the other part. That he told me, it would all be a dream and to wake myself up. I did. He was right. I was in my bed, not my car. Do endings come? I suppose so. But as it goes, we don't generally expect them to. At least most of us don't anyway.
Oh, oh, oh. 
This is Marquis and Bell sitting in for David Hartley within between stations. We are coming in from the middle of the northern Arizona desert on 10,000 watts clear channel radio. Do you ever cry? I do, a lot sometimes. I wonder what the fuck is up with people that go off the deep end about someone being over emotional. Hey Marquis. Why do you cry so much? Hey Marquis, why do you throw dishes at the wall? And yell at everybody? Are you on drugs or something? No, motherfucker I just need a hug, you know, maybe a little reassurance that this mad world I'm living in, isn't so messed up. Okay? Look, I didn't make this screwed up, jacked up reality. I was born into it. I had all these rules given to me. Do this. Do that. Go to school, get a job. Make some money. Get some credit cards. Take out some loans. Get messed up on having five jobs with a jackass mean boss who says. One more day late and you're out of here young lady. Yep. So, I get in his face and say. Why don't you take this cleaning up the toilets for five bucks an hour and shove it up your ass. Then I go out in my car, think of all the bills I have to pay. Bills I can't pay. Bills I won't pay. Think of the job I don't have anymore. And how I will be sleeping in my car tonight, crying all night long with the dome light on. Smoking a hundred cigarettes in a row. Then, screaming all night long into my pillow on the fold-down seat with the spilled coke and rum on it. All because I don't want to go home to a place. And go home to someone else that will tell me to stop crying and calm down. Look wasn't I born wild? Born from a beautiful planet full of big, crazy wild oceans, a sky full of endless changing seasons, and all these powerful storms passing over and through? Look, I have my own storms too, and all my own seasons inside of me as well. But instead, you hand me all these rational ideals and laws and rules and all these promises that turn into lies. So why can't I cry my eyes out sometimes at this crazy and insane world you have given me? Why? Well, guess what? I'm not doing what you tell me anymore. So, kiss my ass. And I'm going to cry all night long too. And if you don't like it, well then, go jump in a swimming pool and drop dead.
Welcome back to In Between Stations Radio. We had some uh, complications, didn't we, Marky? Yep, big time. So we just went ahead and played a, a little bit of uh, longer bits of that uh, that piece, and hope you uh, enjoyed it. We're coming to the end now of our um, broadcast for uh, New Year's Eve and both New Year's Day. We combined uh, those broadcasts so you can hear them. Um, we're running live right now, and it is 2024, early, early in the morning. Um, we kind of mix things up because on shortwave radio, you have 24 time zones to deal with and the international dateline. So um, it can be a little confusing. And so what time is it? All depends on where you're at. So we would like to wish you a brand new 2024 and to realize that we can expand our minds and our hearts in particular and move beyond the violence and move beyond the pain into what I think someday is going to be a beautiful golden age. And I think we can add to that and we can make that possible, not only for humans, but for all life forms, including Batman. Right, Murky? Not Batman. Batwoman. <laughs> but Batwoman. The fully nude, kick-ass, queen of the night, throwing more useless men off the high-line skyscraper roofs of Gotham. You are Batwoman. Okay, we love you, and we're grateful that you are our listeners and you put up with us. We ran a full length, oh, pretty much to our standard time, except we mixed up both uh, day and night, which is kind of interesting, and that's kind of how it goes on shortwave radio. So um, enjoy yourself and your family or wherever you're at. Hey, take a hike or a drive. Go see somebody you love. Um, don't just stay there and look at the wall, okay? And if you can't do anything but that, hey, you can listen to In Between Stations Radio. You probably had enough so far, right? All right, we're going to get some sleep. Breakfast, or, you dumbhead. Oh, we're going out to breakfast to a little cafe that's been open for like 75 years. It's just up the street. I and Merck are going to walk up there going to have our New Year's Day breakfast. With several shots of Coke and rum. No, no, no drinking. <laughs> he had enough of that last night. Okay. We love you and take care of yourself. Hey, happy, happy New, Year's. New Year's 2024. And remember, don't date this broadcast. You can listen to it all year. <laughs> Okay, see ya. We love you. Right, Murky? Yeah. It sounds better when you say it, Murky. Yeah. Okay. We're going to end things now and say goodbye. We love you. Have the best and happiest new year ever. And beautiful peace to the whole wide world. Bye.
This is In Between Stations Radio signing off the air on 3731 kHz in the 80 meter band from Flagstaff, Arizona, United States of America. 